Hello everybody, welcome to this episode of Bond by Numbers. Today we're going to be looking at the writer Tom Mankiewicz. We'll be having a look at his career pre-Bond, we'll be looking at his career post-Bond, and of course, we'll be looking at those transitionary years between the Connery and Moore eras that he wrote for. Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun. Welcome, welcome aboard the good ship BBN. My name is Scott Powell, and I'm talking to you from Scotland over here in episode 46, and I'm joined across the pond by my hearty co-hosts Jeff Chapman and Joshua Taylor. Gentlemen, welcome aboard. Nice to see you. Hello. Yeah, w- welcome. Today we will be showing a little more cheek than usual. <laughs> <laughs> and cut. That's us done. <laughs> That's it. Show's over. Yeah, that quote sums it all up. It does. It, well, it kind of does. It kind of does in a way. Uh, yeah. Hey, if this is the good ship BBN, I, I guess uh, are me and Jeff in this situation... Uh, uh, this is not going to sound anything but awkward. Are we <laughs> Jeff Bond and Tiffany Case, or are we Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid? You, you are, yeah, you're, you're more Wint and Kid. You're like the barnacles on the hull. Yeah, well, Jeff's Corona beard uh, definitely has more of a Mr. Kid kind of situation mm. going on there. <laughs> it does, yeah. I saw a picture of Jeff recently, Jeff, uh, on Instagram, I think, with the celebration of your dog's um, first day out at the park or something like that. And uh, yeah. it was it's quite a beard you're sporting there, buddy. Oh, yeah, it's pretty big. I kind of look like Jim Morrison right now. Well, I admire that. I do admire that, though I must say I've been quite, um, I've been quite spoiled. A couple of years ago, my wife uh, bought me this... A great membership into a wet shaving club, and every six oh, yeah. every six weeks I get beautiful emollients and razor blades, and you know all sorts of friggin' uh, oils and creams and stuff. And I've been shaving religiously because I always get such nice product, and I want to try it out. So the lockdown hasn't affected my beard at all. <laughs> Josh, how are you doing? Beard. I shave my beard every couple of weeks. Lately at work, I've been doing like the Monday to Friday kind of thing, and I'm not really used to doing that as I was as I had like a more of a compressed schedule before. Mm-hmm. So I just like yeah, sometimes I'm just like ah, my beard, whatever. I'm wearing a mask most of the time. Who cares? True enough. True enough. I, I, even though like we have taken very good precautions at work and everything, like we have an automatic temperature scanner when we walk in and stuff. Uh, de- strict rules when it comes to like not wearing your mask in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, being sent home from work basically if, yeah, if you yeah. don't uh aesthetically personal hygiene is let go you know and and uh, maybe i should it's a lot more but what does it fucking matter right now at the moment you know hmm. like but there are bigger I, things I, I, there are bigger I see, things i see where jeff's you know it coming from in this particular case hmm. do you guys ever think about sporting mustaches because our friend tom mankowitz had a mustache for much of his career Oh, I don't like mustaches. I just don't look good with them. I don't even uh, look good with a beard, to be honest with, with you. Well, my grandfather wore one for quite a while, Josh. And, you know, I, I was never a big well, fan of that one. He, he, yeah, his face, but I don't know, like, I think because he was, he was rather, like, very pronounced bone structure our grandfather had, you know? And In other words, I, gaunt, yeah. Yeah, gaunt, yes, yeah, very gaunt. You know, he was a drinker and stuff. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going And a smoker. Honestly, and a smoker, exactly. So, you know, I think the mustache suited his features mm. but it did i think it could have made him look a little older than he actually was mm-hmm. you know what i mean because mm-hmm. if you look at him as a young man as a soldier like i'm looking at a picture of him right now on the shadow box i got created for him and actually he looks like you scarily looks like you right now but uh, but you never thought about growing one yourself josh a couple of years ago when that november was was really big yeah i did mm-hmm. i did it then but i didn't like it hmm. and jeff what about you, you ever ever think of going mustache Oh yeah, I, I mean, I did in November or something. Like that. I had a mustache for a bit. I like mustaches. I just, mm-hmm. I think I, I do too. I gotta say, I do as well. <clears throat> yeah, 
it really helps. It's all about the grooming the mustache. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's all yeah, about it the is, grooming yeah. of the mustache as well. If you're not interested in that or you're not good at that, then then don't bother. I think that's kind of my thing. Is that, like I didn't want to put the effort into it. You know. Hmm. Yeah, I'm getting that vibe. <laughs> like, like, why can't you just, uh, what, you know, why can't your mustache just automatically twirl on both ends and be like, you know, Al Swearingen in Deadwood, you know, like, why can't it be like that? But it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Things in life take effort, BFG. Yeah, or, yeah. They do, unfortunately, they do. But actually, who would you say, Jeff, like, or and Scott, and just in general, who do you think pop culture-wise has the best mustache? Pop culture? Oh man, yeah, I don't know. Look, I mean, well, like, Magnum PI is like good. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Tom I Selleck think Tom Selleck's hard to beat. Your dad had a good one too in the eighties. My dad grew a good mustache. Yeah, my dad. So, was so like, did my dad. Like, like my did dad he? Was like Lionel like Richie in the in the eighties. I think I mentioned that on the last episode. We probably <laughs> did. Yes, I think I remember that rabbit hole. Anyway, yeah. speaking of rabbit holes, we are trapped inside this well. Let's get out of it and uh, talk about the new Bond trailer. <laughs> Uh, the second full-length trailer for No Time to Die was released on Wednesday, I believe. Wednesday or Thursday. What did you guys think of that? Have you seen it yet? I saw it last night. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I've, I've seen Like, It's funny. I've, I, I've seen part of it. And uh, from what I can see, I think they're showing too much, but that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. I know that sometimes we can get spoiled with uh, trailers. Sometimes they, uh, they show too much. Sometimes they don't show enough, which I always think is better to err on the side of caution and not show too much but mm-hmm. i mean i like what i saw but at the same time i, I want to leave some to the imagination yeah, obviously yeah. knowing bond pretty well and already knowing quite a bit about it i'm not like super surprised but at the same time mm-hmm. i want a bit of surprise <laughs> absolutely and i wonder jeff if if um if if you're acknowledgement of or feeling that maybe they're showing too much is do you think that's a product of the times recognizing this film has been delayed and now COVID has knocked it back again and maybe we'll get another delay even though the trailer says November do you think maybe Mm -hmm. the broccolis are wanting to plug action in there to kind of satiate the proles until this thing comes out and all the bond I wouldn't be surprised Uh, I mean that that would make sense I mean I I don't know the real answer yeah uh no, I mean, I think you're probably onto something there. That w- that wouldn't make sense. I mean, if that's not the case, then it, mm. it, it regardless, that makes sense. But yeah, I I don't know how much I would really want to deconstruct that, like the imagery of it, the narrative of it. I mean, there's obviously, yeah. as you say, Jeff, there are quite a few. Uh, maybe not spoilers, but um, you certainly now are clearer that the the Safin character is connected to um, connected to Madeline Swan. You know, we we got that connection made for us that. I, I think is a little more clearly underlined here and I feel as though I, I just think to, to, to sort of pontificate or to try to figure it out is for me it, it's a game as I've said before on the show it's a game I don't really want to play too much mm-hmm. you know I yeah, like this I like the spectacle pieces. of the trailers but yeah although yeah. Hans Zimmer's score is available for pre-order now which I think oh, yeah, I really really want to hear that right now yeah I, yeah I really want to see what it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's good I got a feeling it will be I don't know I just got a good feeling it will be well um, I know that Billie Eilish's song is on that album and if you think of the last couple of releases the score has been separate to the single being released and i'm wondering if maybe there is some interplay there between composer and song i think you're probably right yeah why else would zimmer want to or why else would uh, yeah yeah why would they want to do that i maybe who knows no i mean that that because otherwise, if it doesn't normally happen and Hans Zimmer isn't, doesn't normally do that or that's not mm-hmm. the usual way of things, then that would be a – that to me would make 
it makes sense makes yeah. a lot of sense in that yeah. so be a welcome uh, so return Hans, yeah not so much as Hans Zimmer too because it, it's it's whatever the exactly it, the licensed I guess soundtrack provider or I guess uh, distributor uh, that's sure, it's, up, it's up to them really right mm -hmm. and they're probably working in concert with like um, United Artists or Eon's marketing right uh, going back to the trailer though um, I, I really enjoyed the trailer. Um, I really got the feeling of a shared universe kind of thing with the trailer, like in the sense of, of I like the whole kind of like team effort, I guess they're trying to show in the trailer. Like you have Bond and then you have Q and you have Moneypenny. Mm -hmm. uh, however, Lashana Lynch's character will fit in. We don't know. Uh, they, they're kind of suggesting things. You got M in there as well. Safin, they're teasing the Safin and Madeline uh, dynamic for sure. Yeah. And Blofeld as a Cannibal Lecter-esque kind of mm -hmm. information source. Whatever's going on there. Maybe he's playing 3D chess We don't, or 4D chess. We don't know. <laughs> uh, and then, then I wonder, it's the scope of the trailer too. One of my friends said it reminded him more of like a Brosnan-era Bond film than like a Daniel Craig one. And I kind of feel that in a way. There's a really big scope to everything that you see in that trailer. Hmm. That's an and, interesting and, observation. I... Uh, yeah. I, I hadn't like, thought of it that way, but yeah. Yeah, okay. and the thing too is that they're talking about like this will destroy, you know, the whole world is at threat, and that really never happened in the last three Bond movies, right? You know what I mean? Like four, or last four Bond movies, I should say. Uh, so it looks like maybe they're like finally building up to the big classic, you mm -hmm. know, Bond trying to save the world scenario with with with, with um, uh, no time to die. It could be. You could be and right. Craig looks like he's also kind of really down for the movie too. Like it, I just noticed in the trailer even that he seems excited and he's even dropping kind of Roger Moore like isms like, uh, oh, she must be very disarming. You know what I mean? Maybe we'll get an interesting blend of Bond, you know, like of Craig Moore Brosnan or something in this movie. Uh, does any of you think that Anna Damas is going to be basically the Monica Bellucci of this film? Because like I know she was added to the production at the last minute. I think because on Daniel Craig's behest, I think he got her into the into it. Well, I I don't know if. Um, but then if, we have the rewrites coming in from Phoebe Waller Bridges. Maybe that would happen around the same time. I'm not sure. So maybe she does have a more significant role than she initially had. I I, I don't know, but she could be like a one and done kind of character. You know what I mean? She could be. I feel as though they're kind of holding back on playing her too much in in the in the trailers. I think they want to yeah. kind of hide that hand a little bit because. Like you say, or like Jeff said earlier, so much is revealed, at least so many what I think are going to be set pieces are hinted at and teased that I think maybe keeping the character line out a little is is probably clever on their part. Well, yeah. I, I think that maybe she might have a fairly important role just because she is in a lot of a lot of the shots, which mm -hmm. and also in the in the recent trailer, it did show her like, you know, grab some guns from behind a bar, like an Uzi and a pistol. So I mean, look, maybe she's in it for five minutes, but uh, look, if she's got a gun, she's you know she's making a she's gonna go down in a blaze of glory for five. That's minutes, right. Yeah. Who knows? I'm yeah, guessing if know. she if she has a gun and she's trying to help out Bond, she's probably in it for more. She's gonna be in it for more than five minutes. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Anyways, uh, very yeah, very uh, yeah. I was excited by the trailer. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of preferred the earlier one for its discretion, uh, but uh, and it kept, they kept kind of also showing the same action scene over and over. Like you could tell they were going back to that one sequence, like wherever they were in Italy or on that bridge or something like that. And mm -hmm. uh, it seems like they're just, that was like, that, that's going to be their big set piece. And that's what they're trying to draw us to for sure. Well, it is an incredible bike jump. Like it is yes, remarkable, yeah. you know, to, to capture that thing and uh, like the way they have done, I, I think it's remarkable. And you guys said it, you know, um, 
few episodes ago, probably sometime last year, in fact, when uh, we were we were talking about uh, Kerry Fukunaga, and y- yes. you were you were reminding me that it was his season of True Detective that was the prettier of the two, the more interesting of the two. I I had confused the two seasons, and I think that this film is really going to be a spectacle. I, I mean, there's no Roger oh, yeah. Deakins. I know there's no Roger oh, Deakins, yeah. but we've you know we've got a great crew there, and it'll be cool to see what uh, what he puts out to it. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Because like you yeah. say, Craig looks up for it. Uh, he is an exceptionally good actor, regardless of whether or not he's he's my or your or anyone else's favorite Bond. There's right. no denying the fact that he can do uh, so many different things in the role. I think it's going to be great. I was I was really impressed with the trailer. I agree, Josh. Yeah. The first one is more discretioned and or yeah. discretionary, and it's a little more interesting for that. Uh, this does give away a lot, and it does kind of play a little more on what I think the fans want to see, which is more content in this time yeah. of waiting. But uh, I I gotta say, like I'm I'm more excited by this trailer than I was by Spectre or by Skyfall. And mm. may, maybe that's a product of the, the gestation, <laughs> you know, that so, we've all we've all been waiting under. But I'm yes. yeah. yeah, I'm I'm really excited about it. I can't I can't wait. Yeah. Adding to that, um and I think there is validity to that. What I was thinking, uh, and if we're talking about sort of people are wa- wanting, you know, they're wanting more people are coming, you know, it's the pandemic thing and and you know pe- theaters are opening, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, people are kind of you know, they're kind of, it's like d- dipping your toe back in like, you know, the water to see, oh, should, I go? Right, yeah, should I go, should I go? That's right. And so, and I think you're right where if they're going to show the action, you're like, okay, is this going to be a bond that I will spend the money and go to a place where there's lots of people where technically, you know, you could be risking your health. So it's like, is it worth my money? Is it going to be an action packed bond? So maybe they're showing all this mm-hmm, action mm-hmm. be like, look, we're, we're giving you action. We're giving you Daniel Craig. This could be a swan song. Here's an action packed bond. Uh, So they're showing you some of the bells and whistles. So then you're like, you know what? I will pay the $10, $15 and go to a theater uh, and do this. Whereas if they're like, look, you haven't shown me enough for me to actually come outside my bubble and and, and do this. So maybe I'm just just sort of like, you know, playing devil's advocate here. But maybe that's, I mean, you know. Maybe that's the way they were thinking. Yeah, man, too. totally, yeah. totally. And and you got to think about the tenuous uh, state of the box office too. I mean, well, exactly, exactly. Like right, like like right now, like uh, the biggest one in the movie in the box office at the moment is Tenet. I mean, that's not a surprise. Christopher Nolan, uh, you know, uh, brilliant. Uh, you know, you know, Christopher Nolan. He's all about the smart blockbuster. That's what he does essentially. Um, so. It's fifty million, I think, tenants made so far, or around that amount, and climbing. But think about what tenant would have made a year ago if it was sure, if, yeah. if, if it opened up. It would be like ten oh, times yeah. big, bigger. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see theaters. Gonna, movies going to have a longer. I probably stay in the box office, in the theater. Sorry, just so yes. that they can make more money. Yep. Yeah. And then it's going to be less films being made because of that. I think. And then so, I will keep wondering. I mean, Daniel Craig, this is his last Bond, but what if due to you know economy and the market. Mm-hmm. It might be actually more uh, economic, uh, sorry, financially sound idea for him to maybe stay on his bond after this movie. Like, who knows, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, well, I, I don't think he will, but I hear exactly what you're saying. I, I reckon that this and other big films, I mean, Bond can take this hit, right? I, and for that reason, I think that the producers are going to want to recoup their budget. They're not going to get it on opening weekend. They're not going to get it after, you know, they're just not going to if they keep it open yeah. in November because people are warily about going back, as Jeff suggests. But I think that over time, if they keep it in there, the stretch over Christmas, the stretch into January, February, you know there are going to be cinemas still playing this, March yeah. probably as well. Yeah. I think 
think that this film is going to have a long tenure, even if it's dropping in multiplexes to one screen showing a day. It's going to be there collecting nickels and dimes, uh, I think, well into spring, to be perfectly honest. And I, yeah, I, I see it recouping its budget, but maybe not making uh, what it could. But, you know, if you think about... That's, I think just they have to be practical about this. I think cinemas have to be practical about it. I think the studios need to understand this. And I think they'll have a streaming option before Christmas between oh, me I and you. I, I think yeah, so. Well, yeah. So it'd be something like Mulan, right? Like Because because mm -hmm. everyone's mad at Disney for making Mulan twenty nine ninety nine. Yeah. No, you're actually buying the movie. Like it's not like you just watch it once. You actually buy. That's you're right. actually buying yeah. the movie Milan. Like mm -hmm. that's 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 the whole thing. And I wonder if, if Disney will do that on their Marvel end. Will they do that with Black Widow as well? Because that mm -hmm. comes out in November, mm -hmm. and uh, that could be competition for No Time to Die, which is really funny because Rachel Weisz, mm -hmm. uh, Daniel yeah. Craig's yeah. wife, is, right. in, is in Black yeah. Widow. So it, it, that would be an, it's the battle yeah. of, of the. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith kind of situation, I guess you could say. <laughs> I, I think I, either way, they're going to be okay, aren't they? They're going to have a happy house. Yeah, yeah abs absolutely. Yeah, that kid's going to be spoiled for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I, there's a lot of legality behind this that I can't speak to, and I don't really understand how it's all going to go. But I would, I, I think that it'll go for release in the cinemas, but it'll be a holiday streaming, you know, download from from whatever platform. I think it'll be a purchase option to do that and it might like you say josh it might go 15 20 pounds or 20 dollars you know and then you get the film but you pay 10 or 12 to go see it in the cinema you know what do you pay in canada now is it like 15 dollars or something for a movie it's a, yeah. it's a, it's about averaging 15 or more depending yeah. on you know the different right whatever whatever you have well maybe they'll jack it, it up to 20 you, yeah it depends where you go you know mm -hmm. that's what it's all about and the theater chain and how they put you know hmm. Well, it's food for thought anyway, guys. It's food for it thought. And uh, I'm glad that we're all kind of seeing the same with respect to the trailers. You know, like we like them, but don't show too much. And, you know, I know other uh, podcasters and other writers in the community are doing a lot of deconstruction of this. And I'm trying to avoid it. I'm less interested in, in hearing other people's theories because they're educated and because they're informed. That could be right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want the spoilers or the guesses to become my reality as I prepare to watch the movie. Exactly. I and mean, you can still ignore my crazy M is evil theory as well. You can ignore that, by the way. Yeah, Josh, <laughs> Josh posited that M is evil theory. Well, well, I guess when we did Skyfall, wasn't it? Yeah. So this is the theory, and I'll just present it to you. I think Mr. White was the official head of Spectre, mm -hmm. and I think he was dying. And Blofeld was kind of like the, I guess, the... the, the, the um, a, a lackey that he put in charge, so to speak, as a figurehead. And really, though, uh, and, and Mr. White knew that because of his history with Bond, and he was messing with Bond, so Mr. White knew this. Hmm. And I feel that um, Madeline, being uh, Mr. White's daughter, as was shown in Spectre, I feel that uh, maybe Madeline is actually the head of Spectre or something along those lines. I think that would be an interesting dynamic. And maybe Safin is someone trying to stop her or something like that? Like he could be more of a good guy than we might think that he is, you know? Mm. Yeah. Like, hey, yeah, it, it is interesting. And that could be the moral quandary that Bond finds himself in. But, um, I think I think there's definitely a connection with Mr. White and Madeline, father and daughter, that has yet to be revealed, and that certainly yes. is at the heart, or at least peripheral to the heart of what this new film is going to deal with. So you could be right; she could have a much more uh, stationed role with Inspector than we've seen before. But uh, yes. I, I I don't think that the film is going to 
ask us to kind of rewrite what we already know or reconsider or sort of retcon the stuff that's come before it, I think it's going to find a, a clear way through. At least I certainly hope yes, it does. It won't, it won't be a convoluted exercise. I, I hope I, not. Like, like, well, like Spectre mm-hmm. ended up being, despite despite itself being very simplistic in, in its design. Yeah, yeah. Um, one more thing in regard to uh, the trailer. I agree with everything that you said about it. You know, I'm excited for it, but I want, you know, less is more, I guess you could say, in, in these circumstances. I still don't understand how he's Dr. No that some people are theorizing. I don't see where that theory is coming from, but I'm willing to like embrace that, I guess, if it happens. But hmm. I don't really see how he can be Dr. No. I don't know where people are getting the idea that he's Dr. No. It doesn't look it's, anything it, like no. Dr. No. Like, well, it's also a fanboy thing, right? Like yeah. there's, there's no Dr. No here. There's, that's, there's, there's really no hints in the Craig universe of any of the previous bonds. Now you could say, well, the Aston, or you could say the Aston Martin. I'm like, well, he won that in Casino Royale. So that's already then written that one out. I've heard it too, but I think it's total bullshit myself. It's just people in, in the space and time of their own lives, waiting for a film to come out, trying to make something to talk about. And I totally stuck, get stuck that. Stuck in their you know? homes, stuck in their homes. Well, stuck in their homes. Yeah. I mean, look at yeah. us, right? We, we got a bond yeah. podcast that does different shit all the time. And I'm, yeah. you know, I'm certainly not uh, speaking down to anybody who's doing that, but I think it's a harebrained <laughs> crackpot yeah. sort of theory. Although speaking, yeah. speaking of the, of the roulette wheel, uh, that, mm-hmm. that I think, what was the name of that um, article you sent me? That ranking that you sent me, that uh, it was a link you sent me with the rankings of all these film scores. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was NME. It was an NME yeah. article. Oh, yeah, yeah. NME. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the British like, magazine. N- yeah. Not one John Barry Bond score on there? Like, what yeah, the hell? No. Yeah, Josh is referring to the top 50 film scores of all time, uh, which was a ranking that the, uh, I, I believe it was Classic FM that did the ranking initially yes. to the radio, radio station over here, and it's been obviously picked up by different entertainment magazines and journals and whatnot. But, yeah, Schindler's List was number one one overall and i think that that's it's a lovely score it's a lovely theme uh one of the best themes but uh, in terms of best film scores i mean i can think of dozens in my mind how is jaws up in like is up at the top near the top 50 like that's crazy like jaws Mm -hmm. should be way way down near the bottom of like uh by the bottom i mean that you know like the top 10 you know what i mean i'm just really surprised at some of these choices Mm -hmm. and the fact that only for bond they only put monty norman's james bond theme okay I get that, but I think it should have been a more introspective. It seems like they don't want to alienate the the readers. They don't want to show them anything that, you know, a they want to be a little. Perhaps they want to increase uh, traffic by getting clicks by putting stuff that infuriates yeah. people like me and you on there. Maybe, um, but at the same time, also they're also very safe in their choices and very not. There's no no lot of imagination, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, uh, that's all else. That's all I will say about that. I just wanted to bring that into the bond uh, conversation, and okay. uh, we'll see how the Hans Zimmer score ends up. Mm. Jeff, what are your hopes for it? Are you excited about the soundtrack at all, or is it just gonna uh, kind of wash over you? So. Well, because I pretty much love everything that Hans Zimmer's ever done, uh, and I mean, and I will definitely give credit where credit is due. Josh got me into film scores as basically something something to listen to it's funny like i knew they were there but i just i think i may have had one as a kid i don't even remember which one but i was not i was never really into like for example soundtracks because i as much as i I was not really big into compilations i would like to get the whole album and listen to it Mm -hmm. now that's here or there but i never really listened to scores and thought of it that way and then josh was really when we first started to hang out 
Uh, he was like, oh, listen to this chord. Listen. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I li- I'm like, oh, yeah, I like this. I'm like, this is something, you know, I would, I really like this. I'm like, it's, yeah. you know, in a dumb way, I was like, it's like classical music, but it's like for movies. I mean, I knew what it, I knew what it was. Yeah, but I was like, yeah. man, I really like this. And I was like, man, I, I really want to do like, you know, schoolwork and read. And that's it, great. And then it just kind of opened me up to the film and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So, and one of the earlier ones, because oh, Josh is such a fan of Zimmer, he was giving me Zimmer scores. Like, you know, uh, I think he gave me like Crimson Tide and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Gladiator when it came out right away. And then we were, so I, I had a few of, of, of the Zimmer ones that he gave me. And I, so I was really into Zimmer. And I, I must say, like, Zimmer is probably one of my favorite of, of the contemporary um, film composers. And so I'm very excited. Anyway, so long story short, I'm very excited. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm chomping oh. at the bit for this one. Nice yeah, one. one. And one thing to clarify as well, the, the, the atmosphere that we were playing, I was playing the film scores, was very conducive to them because <laughs> when, we, yes. when we used to we used to do like uh, like Dungeons and Dragons role playing yeah. mm-hmm. stuff, and mm-hmm. I, I put one of the scores on in the background and said atmosphere, right? And I think yeah. that's kind of how gradually I kind of uh, seduced you film score wise. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Nice one. <laughs> Well, shall we get on then with uh, the subject of the day? The reason we're all here is to talk about the Bond work and the career of Tom Mankiewicz, the writer Tom Mankiewicz. Shall we, uh, shall we just sort of mosey on down to Mankiewicz Road and see, see what this is all about? Yes, sir. Absolutely. All right. Okay, well, uh, guys, I think for the purposes of our discussion here today, what we'll do is share a few stories from Mankiewicz pre-007, uh, which kind of brings us up to about 1970. Uh, then we'll skip the years of the Bond writing for a few moments while we talk about his post-Bond career, starting from like 1975, and then go back in the spirit of the focus of our show uh, and chat on the period of and the three films inclusive. How's that? Yeah, sounds good to me. Is that cool? All right, excellent. Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, guys, I uh, I finished a book recently, um, My Life as a Mankiewicz. This is Tom Mankiewicz's autobiography, which was written by himself with a bit of help from his buddy Robert Crane. And it's a very revealing book, very interesting book. Much of what I share with you today is taken from that autobiography. So stories from Tom's own, um, own experience and his, his own mouth, so to speak. I've also dipped into some of the production notes of the Bond films for when we get to those stages. And I got some... Um, of this information as well from uh, Roger Moore's diary of events on um, Live and Let Die during the production of that and also his autobiography. So I've got a lot of different sources here and I uh, would just like to mention uh, Robert Crane's contribution to Mankiewicz's autobiography. Um, Mankiewicz has died now. He died of pancreatic cancer in 2010. I won't go into that too much, but... Um, uh, he was an um, interesting figure, certainly an interesting figure, not just as a writer, but as a, a member of this sort of Hollywood royalty. And yes. um, I guess that's a good place for us to start. So uh, stop me, guys, as we go along. I've got some interesting mm. questions and um, queries for you. So we'll uh, we'll just talk about Tom Mankiewicz for a while. And once again, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, why Tom Mankiewicz? Is, is it just because I got the book and we said, yeah, let's do this one? Kind of. But yes. Mankiewicz is also an interesting choice to focus on because he's not the number one Bond writer. I, I think others no. would remember. Uh, you know, Maybe he Bomb. hasn't done the most. You have Maybomb, but not just Dick Maybomb. I think we've also got P- Purvis and Wade. You know, those guys yes. could are still in the mix, so to speak. Um, and we've had other Bond writers like Roald Dahl, you know, we could focus on. But 
for my part, personally, I've always been drawn to Tom Mankiewicz's screenwriting for the Bond films because it's so very unique. And I think it helped give Roger Moore the confidence to stand in his own shoes, you know? And, yeah. I find his dialogue very, if I were to give, describe it, it's very Hoxian. Very, uh, I think he really likes that that screwball comedy kind of dialogue. You know, I was going to say that, that yes. Terry Grant, His Girl Friday, that sort of stuff. I think that's what he really enjoyed doing. And did his father direct and write All About Eve? Yes, yeah, he did both. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so wow. you can see, you can you can see you know mm-hmm. Joseph L. Mankiewicz in his son just on that basis alone. And uh, I remember my first experience with Tom Mankiewicz wasn't with the Bond films. It was actually seeing him talking about his dad in that documentary on the making of Cleopatra mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what his dad went through making that film. And yeah. I can't just imagine. And just I guess that was, that was I think that was really Tom Mankiewicz's first experience of Hollywood. And I guess the attitude that he'd had towards it, I guess, going mm-hmm. into the industry. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that certainly did have a formative impression, leave a formative impression on him. Uh, Jeff, your your initial impressions of Tom Mankiewicz when uh, when we jumped this as a topic for discussion? Well, I, from what I noticed, you know, he did a lot of the early, uh, early seventies Bond film, uh, Bond films, and so obviously it was uh, the Roger Moore over. And from what I watched, like I did, like Josh made a good point of sort of the tongue in cheek, um, back and forth, mm-hmm. clever, uh, cleverly written, witty, sometimes I mean quite cheesy, but that. that here nor there but for the 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 script it it works very well and it um i was i was impressed with it and it it does work and i feel like his writing works almost solely with roger moore i couldn't see it really working with any of the other Mm -hmm. bond actors Mm -hmm. uh and and re-watching um man with the golden gun in the last couple of days i i really did appreciate uh, the writing um, in in different and the thing is it's not just with him with like you know the main villain or or someone else, it was the side character conversations that I actually thought were some of the more poignant ones that I I appreciated more uh, in regarding um, the writing and, and the the actual dialogue. Yeah, uh, and well, so. Yeah was sort of looking at a little bit more of his background and stuff like that he he i mean he's obviously got the chops and he he inherited the the screenwriting and and hollywood uh bug so he Mm -hmm. was uh he was brought up in that in that light and it looks like he he used uh you know he used his his family rolodex to good use (laughs) Uh, yeah he's he's an interesting person and uh, i'm glad Mm -hmm. that he was able to have a fairly uh full career obviously he didn't live too too long as as people do but uh, i think he had a pretty good life yeah he filled it up that's for <laughs> he sure did fill it up. and when we get to that when we get to talking about the bond films i really look forward to hearing your guys favorite mankiewicz moments you know and then uh, maybe sure. we can sort of you know compare notes at that stage and uh, sure. and, and talk some favorites and and yeah. you know there's also a couple of lines that, <laughs> that don't hit so well as well uh, yeah and yeah, yeah. It's all about the delivery of, of the actors, though. <laughs> and, mm. I, and I I think Josh is definitely uh, on to something there. Um, mm. As much as I said, I, I did appreciate some of the the lines in, like, for example, Man with the, the Golden Gun, there's a couple of lines that I'm not a fan <laughs> of. That will, will, yeah. I think a lot of the fans know what I'm talking about, about a certain uh, southern sheriff. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll get yeah. there. And well, why don't Swedish British op, uh, British operative? I guess. Well, that's it. That's it. 
I'm warming to her, but uh, uh, Han, that's what I call yeah, her. I'm warming to Goodnight a little bit, but we'll we'll talk uh-huh. about it when we get there. Why don't Very we start, good. guys? Why don't we start by going back to Ellis Island and way back to uh, way back to Mankiewicz's grandparents? We'll start there. Professor okay. Frank Mankiewicz was a German who emigrated with his wife Joanna at the turn of the 20th century. They settled in Pennsylvania for a short time before moving to New York. Mankiewicz called him Pop. And uh, Pop taught languages at uh, Stuyvesant High School before becoming a professor at Columbia University. By all accounts, uh, this is me reading between and on the lines, um, he was a very difficult man, Mankiewicz's grandfather, uh, particularly at home, demanding excellence from his kids. Tom's father, Joseph, obviously Professor Frank's son, um, and his uncle Herman, were both often punished for not being bright enough. Uh, you know, it's funny. I remember my own mom telling me a story about our grandfather, Josh, years and years ago, who, when they were growing up in Montreal, mom would bring home a test or something, and it would be like 96%, and grandfather would say, where's the other four? Like, And then oh. and then mom would bring home 100, and he'd say, there's no such thing as perfect. Like, I feel as though, oh. like, when I read this section of the book, I'm like, man, that sounds just like how um, our moms talked about grandfather you know what i mean now obviously who who knows the truth right but yeah insecure Mm. um man but maybe had the philosophy that you want to make sure that your children are striving all the time absolutely yeah yeah you want your kids to do better than you and so if he was just trying to if he had to come off maybe bristly in that sense Mm -hmm. or yeah, uh, and, that, and, that, and that's reasons, how but... we get the ball rolling. Like you know, it's, I mean, mm-hmm. and sometimes it works. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it can like again. I I don't have I don't have children, but I can see how it, you have to sort of take a look. And sometimes it, you might be just spitballing, like you know, throwing mm-hmm. you know throwing things to see what sticks on the wall is like. A lot of people have different ways of, of motivating people. Sometimes yeah. it can it can come off like that, but it seemed to work. <laughs> and I also think you're onto something with respect to the the tradition. I mean, they're immigrants, right? And yeah. he True. he wants to succeed in this part of the world. He doesn't want to go back to Germany. He doesn't want to go. He wants to you know live the American dream. And That's and very good. To do that, yes. you, you gotta you gotta bust the the lower genes, right? That's right. I think that you make a very good point, especially because, especially being and not being like in the in the nows, like you know the the twenty twenties or what have you, uh, it was very much like you would always have to be work harder because hey, look, you're in our country. You, you, it's one of those things. It's it's that way of thinking, and obviously a lot of unfortunately a lot of people felt that way. Like hey, you're here, you know, you yeah. you're taking your job, and I don't agree with that sentiment, mm-hmm. but those people always uh, like people had to work harder and so mm-hmm. they thought look we're almost like a guest here like we came here we got to make the best of it so we have to work harder and again with the motivation if you have to motivate your family to to let everyone know that we got to work hard we're here uh let's do the best we can mm-hmm. and and it's a lot of times i think it might sort of uh it might not it might come out like that so that yeah. makes sense that does totally and the uh well, and yeah, I mean, the, the the two boys were prodigies, and in spite of that sort of harsh punishment, um, I was really surprised to learn that not just Joseph, Tom's dad, but also his brother Herman, they both graduated from Columbia while they were still in their teens. That's I yeah, that's impressive. That's very impressive. Yeah, 
And they also had a daughter, by the way. Um, Frank and Joanna also had a daughter, uh, an aunt, who was named Erna. Now, Erna was considered, at least in the book, when she is mentioned, she's considered by Tom and, and most of the family to be a rather cold and distant and critical member of the family. She was married to a doctor in New York. Not very much is shared about her. And I get the feeling as though she was just sort of like the kind of black sheep and maybe not as interested in the the showbiz side of things or keeping up family relations. I mean, they would see her. They would see her uh, on like holidays and trips through New York and things like that. Right. But I, I just feel like she I, seems like she's like the Hamptons, not like the Long Island, New York elite. You, you, you well, know what I mean? That's what she seems like. She was and she looked down upon. I guess, uh, her more Western aspiring, um, perhaps, but I also think growing up in the shadow of those two guys wasn't easy for her. And she probably, she probably, you know, turned a cold shoulder to them for having a thing when she didn't, you know, um, they they both became very famous. Herman Mankiewicz uh, grew up to be a screenwriter of great success. He wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles and won Mm, won an Oscar. But he ended up dying before his time in his 50s, suffering from alcoholism and other afflictions. According to Tom, Uncle Herman was addicted to insulting studio executives and (laughs) was often fired or close to being fired for making fun of Daryl Zanuck, uh, Harry Raff, who was the MGM executive, uh, or Harry Cohn, who was the head of Columbia. Well, Well... Cone and Zanuck were assholes, so I don't blame him for that. I ah, well, yeah. yeah. Well, they can be, but if you call them to their face, don't expect a callback. Mm-hmm. Might as well no. just, yeah. Definitely. But having said that, he was never really in the doghouse. Herman was never really in the doghouse too long with these guys. For some reason, they always kind of wanted him around. Like, yeah, he would he would piss them off and say stuff to them. And, um, and some of the comments he made were just downright rude. Like, But he he was a raconteur. Uh, he was beloved within the family. His social circles adored him. And even these execs and these sort of higher ups within the studios, you know, they couldn't just drop him. He wrote Citizen Kane, you know, and yes. he had a lot of clout. Uh, Herman did but yeah he did die from those kind of self-induced afflictions in his 50s which as we all know not just because we're nearing it but it's not old (laughs) it's not old Uh, yeah well Joseph uh, Mankiewicz was certainly the most successful of the Mankiewiczes I know we're talking about Tom today but his dad's shadow casts a little bit broader yeah his uh, his films I think are only a little less well known today as they were in the 50s and 60s I certainly don't think, you know, teenagers today, young people are, are who aren't into film would just know his movies, but they'll probably have heard of one or two of them, and it doesn't take long once you scratch the surface to actually see how influential Joseph Mankiewicz was. He worked with most of the big names in Hollywood. He earned his own big name in the process of doing so. Uh, we could spend ages talking just about him. He was a four-time Oscar winner, twice for screenplays, twice for directing. Um... He won the four Oscars for 1949's A Letter to Three Wives and 1950's All About Eve. Other credits include some of my favorite films. Uh, the Ghost of Mrs. Muir, 1947. Mm. I absolutely love that film. With, with Rex Harrison, too. That's right. Rex Harrison and yeah. Jean Tierney, who's just smoking hot. I, I don't want to bring it down to that level, but man, she was not just a great <laughs> actor. She was also a beautiful, beautiful actor. Um, yeah. 1954, The Barefoot Contessa with Humphrey Bogart and Ava Gardner. Uh, Five Fingers in 1952 with James Mason. Uh, he did the 53 Julius Caesar with Brando and James Mason. Ah. That's right. Yeah. And um, yeah, James Mason, Brando, and uh, what's his name? John Gilgood. Mm-hmm. He was uh, Gilgood, Cassius. Yeah. 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 
Uh, Guys and Dolls with Sinatra in 1955. He directed Suddenly Last Summer with uh, Liz Taylor in 1959. Oh. He did 1963's Cleopatra, and we can stop and talk about that when we get there in a few moments, which was just an enormous production. And in 1972, his last credit was Sleuth with Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier. Oh, cool. Yeah, so Louis B. Mayer molded Mankiewicz into a real serious producer. This is Joseph. By the time he was 30, uh, young Joseph had already produced 20 films, been Oscar-nominated for screenwriting, and he was a rising star. But he wanted, he kind of always wanted to direct pictures. His, you know, I, I just think that's what he always wanted to do, and that's what he eventually did do after he left the screenwriting somewhat behind. Um... Yeah, I think you know, the, the Louis B. Mayer. I mean, you hear a lot about these big these big studio heads, right? But yes, he wouldn't let Joe direct, knowing that if he did, he'd lose the studio's best producer. And oh, in a, okay. just keep that little mind, keep that little point in mind, because later on in Mankiewicz's own career, Tom Mankiewicz's career, he's built up a good relationship with Richard Donner, and he wants to direct, and Donner doesn't want him to because he's going to lose one of his best screenwriters. So <laughs> it's interesting the way that kind of history repeats itself, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. When Joe he was really good at both. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. When Joe asked him to direct, uh, Louis B. Mayer famously reported, you have to learn to crawl before you learn to walk. Well, Joe surprised him by walking away from MGM and heading to 20th Century Fox. Daryl Zanuck had no such scruples. And by the mid-40s, Bankowitz was away from MGM and was working with Fox. According to Tom, his father was a serial philanderer. And he had all sorts of affairs, uh, most notable and long-lasting with Joan Crawford, Judy Garland, and Loretta Young. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's a story about um, Joan Crawford when she was over at the house looking down at, in the crib and Tom Mankiewicz was there and uh, she she turned to Joe and said, that should be my kid in there. <laughs> but it uh, wasn't, yeah. And th- there's some really hellish stories with Judy Garland. Um, who's uh, afraid of baby Tom? <laughs> uh, yeah, who's afraid? Uh, anyway, uh, his mom, let's, let's get, we're getting closer to Tom himself. His mom was, uh, named Rosa Stradner. She was an Austrian who escaped the 19, uh, the Nazis in the 1930s with her mom. Rosa was highly intelligent, beautiful, but she suffered from schizophrenia, which made her hellishly difficult to live with, according to Tom. She was contracted by MGM, but starred in only two films, The Last Gangster with Jimmy Stewart and Keys of the Kingdom with Gregory Peck. She died in 1958 at age 45 by overdosing on pills. When Tom's brother was born two years before himself in 1940, Rosa quit acting to concentrate on her health and her family, but she always thought of returning, though it never really worked out. Her health was so bad by the time that Tom was born in 1942 that he was essentially raised in the first couple of years by his nanny, Jeannie Smith. Rosa's lasting impact on Tom, according to the horse's mouth, was to bestow some magic radar that allowed him to notice a troubled woman from miles away or in a crowded room. Natalie Wood joked, Mank, you could take three different women, dress them identically, have them sit motionless on separate chairs with gags over their mouths, and like a pig with truffles, you could pick out the crazy one. Uh, I'm Um, sure we'll get into Natalie Wood uh, later on. Yeah, they had a great friendship uh, up until the time of her death, and uh, Tom talks a little bit about that too. But yeah, Tom Mankiewicz, our our Bond writer, coming up. He was born uh, June 1st, 1942 in Los Angeles. At the age of eight, his dad moved the family back to New York, which is where he was raised. Shortly after the family's arrival there, Tom began a rather expensive private education. I'm I'm obviously glossing over a lot here, guys. He he graduated from uh, Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire before
before attending Yale to study wow. English. Um, yeah, Mankiewicz did, though. If you want to move on now to him more in the world of film, he did cut his teeth on his dad's film sets uh, where he gained confidence and experience working with stars, but he didn't gain any official credits there. And I, I, I think this is quite cool, actually. Joe Mankiewicz uh, was really firm about any film job that Tom got being with people who he never collaborated with so that there could be no accusation of overt, oh. of overt nepotism. Yeah. Obviously, still, you're still Joe Mankiewicz's son, but you're yeah. not working with anybody no, who smart. I'm rubbing shoulders with. Yeah. No, that's smart, especially because there's, I mean, there's so much nepotism in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it makes sense. So that, that, I think that's actually a pretty smart move. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe for both ends of the family, it's, it's not a yeah. bad move. Uh, but I do say overt, though, guys, because Joe Ooh, did yeah. write he did write a letter to Doc Merman, who was the head of the physical production department at Fox. And although Joe at that time was independent, um, he knew and he liked Merman and he thought maybe Merman could help Tom out landing something entry level. And that's exactly what he did. Fox was shooting the John Wayne film, The Comancheros, directed by the fabled Michael Curtis. And mm. that's where... Tom Mankiewicz ends up. He becomes a third assistant director, which he says is basically like a coffee boy. <laughs> but uh-huh. he uh, he did work. Hey, he did work with Curtis, um, John Wayne, and it's on the set of that film that he lost his virginity to Joan O'Brien. You want me to? You want me to read you a little bit from his uh, reflection on the Comancheros? Sure. Yeah. It's uh, he tells all kinds of funny stories here, uh, as well as um, when. Curtis had ordered uh, some of John Wayne's own cattle to be used in some of these drop-off-the-cliff scenes, and John Wayne didn't know anything about oh, it. And, and Tom oh, no. Mankiewicz no, no, interceded. Just to get some yeah. uh, idea of Michael Curtis for those mm-hmm. listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the guy Warner Brothers used, like in mostly in the 30s and 40s and onwards. He was the one that directed most of Errol Flynn's movies, like oh, Robin Hood yeah. and Captain Blood. Uh, known for black and white directing, but also going into color afterwards, of course. Very mm-hmm. prominent uh, filmmaker for Warner Brothers. He was, yeah. Well, the way he's described in the book is as a son of a bitch by the time he was old. Like, really just yelling at people and, and not following any sort of any sort of daily schedules, just kind of screaming and getting it done. In, in, all, in all honesty, the way that it's described here, um, it was John Wayne's film to direct. Um, speak, speaking of autocrats, Michael Curtis is a renowned director of Captain Blood, Robin Hood, and the immortal Casablanca. The Comancheros That's is right. to be his last film. In his 70s, oh. In his 70s, he's been diagnosed with cancer. He's slowly dying. Wayne heard about it and decided to give him the job because no one seemed to want him anymore and he needed a paycheck. Curtis has a reputation for being a somewhat objectable human being. From what I can see, he certainly deserves it. He's rude to everyone. He's an arrogant prick with a thick Hungarian accent. Two days before filming, we have lunch with the mayor of Moab. Curtis has to sneeze, and he does so into our tablecloth. I swear it. He sunbathes nude at the tiny pool of the Apache Motel, not a pleasant sight, and outrages other guests, <laughs> some of whom have children. The manager threatens to evict him. He stops. Wayne doesn't seem to like Curtis personally, and Curtis definitely doesn't like the fact that Duke controls the production. But at his advanced age, feeble and sick, there's little he can do. In Moab during the summer, temperatures can reach 110 degrees. Curtis usually falls asleep in his chair by early afternoon. We protect him with umbrellas to keep the sun off him and put chamois uh, cloths filled with ice around his neck. We all take salt pills. Once he's asleep, the picture's directed by John Wayne. With seasoned actors such as Lee Marvin and Stuart Whitman and the veteran Bill Clothier behind the 
camera, it all gets done effectively. Toward the end of one particularly hot day, the late afternoon sun burns like a laser beam on the horizon. We've adjusted the umbrella behind Curtis to shield him. Wayne is doing a scene with Lee Marvin. We've done the over-the-shoulder favoring Lee. I look over at Curtis and ask, Turn around on the turn around on Mr. Wayne now, Mr. Curtis. Yes, he mumbles. Just don't turn me around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, so yeah, he he didn't seem to like him very much. But who am I to comment? Really, I don't know anything about Michael Curtis as a man. I only know him as a filmmaker. And yeah, he's got a reputation of being difficult. Um, he as a younger guy he did, but now he's seventy, dying of cancer. I'm you know. It seems like it was kind of an olive branch that uh, John Wayne was extending. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In, anyway, in respect, exactly. Yeah. Moving forward. Jeff, you got anything else about the comic shares you want to talk about? I mean, there's a lot more he shares about it there. It's interesting, but... I just think it was really neat that uh, it's, it's uh, you know, a nice... It's a cool Western with a, a John Wayne movie that you kind of cut your teeth on as a, as a teenager. Yeah, it is cool. Uh, he would have been 17, 18, uh, mm-hmm. this being 1960, I believe. Uh, so it'd be neat for any kid. I mean, I, I guess, I guess uh, Tom would have understood film at this point, and maybe he wouldn't have been too sort of like, you know, went behind the ears. But it's still really neat to have like a decent. I mean, even though he said he was a coffee boy, it's still mm-hmm. pretty awesome to have like a, a decent credit on a film, and yeah. especially a John, uh, Wayne, a John yeah. Wayne film. It, 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 you know, in the '60s, like that kind of thing, or late mm-hmm. '50s, early '60s, that that's that's good. That 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 definitely helps you with your CV at the time. Uh, obviously, having your father be Joseph Mankiewicz helps too. But but the fact is, is that you know he was doing this on his own, and so that kind of it gave him it gave him you know he put his feather in his hat and called him macaroni, and mm-hmm. from there you know he he did a lot more stuff. But it, it's quite it's quite neat to see that. So that's that's a cool sort of first credit anyway that's a it pretty is, good right. first credit for a film <laughs> and he Absolutely. does say he does say a few weeks into shooting i came up to, to wayne sitting in his chair on the set they're ready for you mr wayne he nodded and got up as he started off for the camera he turned and said oh by the way call me duke my answering grin must have been a yard wide when we wrapped <laughs> when we wrapped in the hot desert afternoon sometimes duke would stay behind break out a bottle of cuervo gold tequila and swap stories <laughs> with the stuntmen wranglers and some of the crew i listened nice. laughed drank and thought can life get any better than this hmm. really yeah <laughs> so he did he did have fun there certainly uh, yeah, yeah. And I think he's downplaying a little bit what he says about being an errand boy. He, you know, he probably did a little bit more than that. But I, I would think so. Yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, he's yeah, yeah. 18. That's still pretty young. You're still a teenager. I mean, mm-hmm. granted, times change. So I, I have no idea what what Mankiewicz would have been like as a, as a teenager if he was sort of more like a hard worker and he was sort of dialed in or if he was almost like a fanboy but just sort of trying to keep his mm. cool around this kind of stuff. So it was interesting, but... Um, he was, but he was a bit see. of a fanboy. You're right. He was a bit of a fanboy. Uh, but he, yeah, he was a hard worker. But obviously it seemed like he was a hard worker. And it's it's nice that that comment you said about the smile, I could picture kind of like a, a Cheshire cat grin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just him, you know, getting to have some tequila mm-hmm. with the Duke on set. Yeah, Why yeah not, it's man? pretty cool. Why not? Let's go for it. And um, <laughs> the, the, one of the female leads, Joan O'Brien, she's the one with whom he lost his, his virginity. So I think he's a little wet behind the ears. I think he's a little <laughs> awkward. Uh, I'm 18 years 
old, he says, and still a virgin. There's a very attractive actress in the cast named Joan O'Brien. She worked with Wayne in his previous film, The Alamo, which he directed. She and some, uh, by the way, that's got a, you talk about film scores, The Alamo's got an awesome score by Dimitri Tiomkin. Uh, anyway, now, she... Now, the and, was uh, Bernstein. Yeah, that's right. A that's a great score as well. Yeah, that, that made it onto our short list, Josh, didn't it, of uh, it when, did. we, when we were doing... Yeah. Yeah, our, our own film score reading, yeah. which, is, which is way better than the uh, <laughs> yeah. classic FM one, that's for sure. Yeah. Anyway, she worked She worked with Wayne in his previous film, which he directed. She and some children are the only survivors at the end of that movie. For some reason, she seems to take a keen interest in me. I'm very flattered. We have dinner one night, following which she asks me to come out to her room. It's an amazing evening. I'm all thumbs at what I'm trying to do for the first time, and she is wonderfully helpful, understanding, and kind. Our relationship, if it were, continues for the last weeks of filming it seems there are no secrets on location something i found to be totally accurate years later the stuntmen dubbed me wrangler tom when i come on the set wearing one of my brother's shirts which i mistakenly packed and which is much too large for me they marvel at how much weight i've lost since i met joan <laughs> i'm still deeply grateful to her i couldn't have had a warmer more attractive and understanding teacher oh my but that that sort of tone, like when he talks about particularly yeah. women, that that goes through the story. He seems to be, or at least wants others to think he is, a very generous and thankful individual for all the things that have happened to him. And I, and I think people do soften as they write books when they get older. It's in their yes. best interest to do that, right? Um, I'm not sure Hemingway ever did, but you know, when you're talking about huh. yourself, I think you tend to. You know, there's a lot of nice reflection in this in this autobiography about what it means to be the son of a famous director. You know, and while that opens up some avenues for you, it doesn't help much with writing films because no one's going to just accept your scripts because you're Joe Mankiewicz's son. They, they they might let you edge on the film set and do third unit directing or something, yeah, but there's exactly. no way there's no way they're going to just accept your written work because you're Joe's son, well, right? Exactly, exactly. And I like that. I like that sort of. Um, confessional sort of honesty because uh, you know Joe nails it with All About Eve and Herman before that with Citizen Kane but um, and interestingly enough uh, John Mankiewicz who's Tom's cousin was one of the original writer producers for House and he wrote The Mentalist and his writing oh, yeah. goes all the way back to Miami Vice Tom yeah. says that every Mankiewicz has got good dialogue you know in them um, mm. but mm. I, I, I like the reflection of kind of being son to the famous you know, to the famous um, uh, Joe, you know, it, it, there is a huge chapter on Cleopatra, Josh, in here, uh, all about the studio stuff and the personal health problems for Joe and how he, he basically become a, dr a, a drug addict, you know, dependent not just on sleeping pills, but also on yeah. the, the reverse of those, you know, and like it took him a couple of years to kind of clean up after that movie um, and the on and dealing with like. Oh yeah, Burton and with, Taylor. With, 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 yeah, with Dickie and Liz. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because the film, the film was originally intended to be a two-parter, but when the studio, the studio started to get uh, cold feet about it all, when they realized that what if this relationship, which is all over the media right now, what if this thing doesn't last? We're not going to be able to release the second part of a Liz Taylor love affair if the this great epic relationship doesn't last and so they they forced the, essentially the studio forced Mankiewicz to cut was was like a four and a half hour uh, project into a three hour space for for movie showing right yes. and it made it quite tricky I think I mean just imagine right you one of you guys Jeff you're, you're doing a film and you've been given latitude and longitude to make that film story 
in two parts and you release it a year separate or something like that and then all of a sudden your stars fall in love and the media is nuts for Liz Taylor, nuts for Richard Burton and I tell you as a studio head, look, you see those two films that you want to release, cut out 90 minutes and put them together as a one or so that we're guaranteed people will go to the cinema, you know? All of a sudden you're like, holy shit. And so that the pressure yeah. that was on him as a director, <laughs> yeah. uh, the trajectory and already of stardom. production as well too, right? Oh, absolutely troubled, like, yeah. Because can we mentioned, you know, how Tom Mankiewicz, we'll get into it, how he was a script doctor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph Mankiewicz was not the original director of Cleopatra. It was actually Ruben Mamoulian. That's right, and, yep. And they had, uh, for example, like Peter Finch cast as Caesar, uh, Richard Burton wasn't even involved at that point. I mean, and Liz Taylor was on there, of course. And during the making of the uh, when 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 uh, Mankiewicz took when John when Tom Ma- when, sorry when uh, Joseph Mankiewicz took over, not only was there the Burton and uh, Liz affair, but there was also uh, Liz Taylor's own health uh, because she had to get like a tracheotomy like on the set of the film uh, mm-hmm. or on the th- during the making of the film, I should say, and that also caused a lot of. Uh, you know, media stir. So mm-hmm. overall, it was a very troubled production. So you can see why Joseph Mankiewicz ended up the way that he did after after all was said and done. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of it rested at his feet, right? Yeah. Um, I, I recall yeah. like that documentary on the making of Cleopatra and uh, Tom Mankiewicz just basically saying it destroyed his father. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a remarkable piece of documentary filmmaking and I know so much of it was saved anyway so much of the footage could be used right because there was so much of it but um, it'd be interesting to see a Mankiewicz director's cut of that film where you just get what he actually wanted which was the Rex Harrison uh, Caesar and Cleopatra and then the Antony and Cleopatra side of things you know it would be really cool yeah. to see those two pieces that would be interesting yeah. I, was, I was just reading recently like, uh, like a day or two Apparently, Coppola is now recutting The Godfather Part 3. Mm. So I'm curious mm. to see how that's going to turn out. <laughs> well, if either one of them needs a, needs a rework, it's definitely that one. Yeah. Uh, is, is he going to cut out Sofia Coppola's character? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that'd be okay. Speaking of cutting stuff out, I did skip over a couple things that are kind of Bond-related. Um, uh. When... when uh... <laughs> when Mankiewicz is at private school, his mom comes up to Boston and they go out to the theater. And, uh, uh, okay, we went to the theater on Saturday night. I was heading, it was a play heading for Broadway starring Louis Jordan. It doesn't say what it was, but I'm sure it wouldn't be difficult to find. Anyway, um, after the show, they eat dinner with Louis Jordan and they go back to his suite. Uh, Tom starts to feel a bit uncomfortable. He starts to see the signals and he basically ducks out, goes back home while his mom sleeps with Louis Jordan. And they just, yeah, it's just kind of like a Kamel Khan uh, sex party up in the joint. Yeah, octopusy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh-huh, yeah. Anyway, that's pretty cool. Oh, there's, I also skipped over the... Um, the drink that Humphrey Bogart gave him at the age of 11 on the set of The Barefoot Contessa. Do you want me to tell you that story? Yeah. Well, I just wanted to know the drink, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'll tell you the drink now. It's, I think it was just, just amounted to whiskey. I remember one cold, cold night when the film was shooting in a cemetery. Uh, I'd been dressed for the day in shirt sleeves, and the wardrobe man got me a jacket. I was still shivering. Humphrey Bogart walked by and noticed. Are you cold, Tommy? I sure am. Here, try some of this. Bogart pulled out a flask, took off the top, and filled it with a thimble full of scotch. I've never had a, a flask. Of course, he does. <laughs> I've never had a drink of hard liquor in my life. Only the occasional sip of wine at home. But what the hell? He was Humphrey Bogart. I downed it, and just like they do in the movies, 
My throat started burning. I coughed. And then, son of a bitch, my chest did feel warmer. Bogart grinned. In half an hour, he passed by again. Yeah, you still cold. A little bit. He filled up the top again. I drank. Later on, Dad came by to take me home. Are you ready? I looked up at him with a stupid smile. Yes. The smile remained plastered on my face. Dad looked around, then zeroed in on Bogart. He's drunk. It has to be you, you prick. Christ, Joe, the kid was cold. I was just trying to help out. To this day, I have the singular honor of having received my first real drink from Humphrey Bogart. Not to mention tequila wow. with John Wayne. That's pretty awesome. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tequila with John Wayne, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and he should put that on his resume. Man, I would have given him a job. I know, Look, right? Look, if you, if, you if you can get a flask of whiskey from 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 bogey at 11 and then at 18 you're drinking tequila yeah. with john wayne i'm like yeah. <laughs> holy smokes at 25 what are you gonna do have like crystal with like the like some shake like what's going on here i know yeah. um, <laughs> ava gardner was uh, on that film was in that film as well and uh, she had just kind of had a breakup with frank sinatra and uh, Tom Mankiewicz ended up taking her out to the movies at the age of 12 as well. <laughs> Tell you what, he had an interesting little life hanging out with his dad, man, and meeting all these stars. Right, so, right, okay, there we go. Uh, the, the Cleopatra stuff is fascinating. The family stuff is fascinating. Obviously, I'm skipping through a lot of this, but I, I just want to communicate to anybody who's interested in, not, not Tom Mankiewicz so much, but just these huge figures of the golden Hollywood and kind of the, the beginning of the, and it is very much the beginning of the sort of method acting stars. You know, you get a lot of that chat in here. Uh, I would say method acting schools, what, the 60s, right? Jack Nicholson, Paul Newman, these guys, late 50s, yes. early 60s. Yeah, is that is that fair to say that? Well, I would say method acting is kind of like, yeah, late 60s going into the 70s. Because it happens around the same time mm. as, uh, actually, no, you could trace actually method acting back into the 50s because uh, Brando was definitely That's in the right, yeah. of that. Yeah. And, uh, but it got bigger and bigger, yeah, as, as it went along. But yeah, mm. the 50s, I would say, is the original source of method acting. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't become popular and, and used more until you get Jack Nicholson, late 60s, going into the 70s. Cool. All right. Well, I mean, I, this is kind of leading us into the James Bond stuff, okay? So what I'm going to do, if it's okay with you, is skip the Bond stuff, guys. I'll just say a little bit more, share a few more stories from his career after Bond, and then we'll go back and we'll start thrashing out the three Bonds, okay? Yeah, sounds good to me. Sounds cool. Good, yeah. So uh, after 007, so you're, we're looking about 1974, okay, uh, 75. Mankiewicz had, by this time, earned himself a reputation as a fixer. Now, we're jumping ahead on the timeline about 15 years or so, okay? Now, maybe, maybe 10 years. Not surprisingly... Uh, much of his work immediately following Bond was in this arena of doctor, uh, tidying up poor or drop scripts, polishing other writers' first drafts into something uh, that the actors really liked. Uh, he had a lot of second writer credits. Um, or, in the case of The Spy Who Loved Me, no credit contributions whatsoever. One of the interesting things that I learned reading this book is that his first, or one of his first assignments after leaving James Bond was to go right back to James Bond. And he rewrote that entire script. And this is why, Josh and Jeff, I was asking you guys what you knew about the ED, ED not the edicts, the, the ED. The ED levy. The, the ED, ED levy. levy. Yeah, the yeah. ED levy. Yeah. So... Initially, it came on uh, September 9th, 1950. It was a mm -hmm. voluntary basis to subsidize uh, British film industry, like the producers. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it, then eventually by 1957, under incorporation of something called the Cinema Cinematograph Films Act, yep. uh, 1957, it was then 
uh, it was no longer voluntary. It was a statutory basis. Right. And okay. Right. Essentially, yep. the ED levy. It's when uh, a certain proportion of the ticket price was put into a pool, and half was to be retained by the exhibitors. Um, mm -hmm. which is kind of like an, a, a, a rebate, essentially, mm -hmm. and then have to be divided among qualifying British films, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. in proportion to UK box office revenue uh, and, to quote-unquote, with no obligation to invest in further production. Right. Uh, so essentially, it just gave tax incentives to mm -hmm. British filmmakers. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and then that's basically what dominated the British film industry up until like the 80s, essentially. That's right. And, and I'm correct also in assuming that there were restrictions. Well, I presume I'm correct because Mankiewicz certainly says this. Um, there were restrictions on how many Americans could be part of a British production. That's and... right. 85%, a minimum of 85% of the film, it had to be to be considered a British film. 85% of it had to be shot in the UK mm -hmm. uh, or anywhere in the Commonwealth. So mm -hmm. and and only three non-British salaries right. could be yeah. excluded from the cost of the making the film, and this made sure that British actors, crew, and everyone was hired for these films. Excellent, good work there, buddy, digging that out yeah. for us. Because yeah. uh, if we hold that on the side burner, we'll come back to it when we talk about the Bond stuff. So after 1977, um, Peter Falk asked Mankiewicz to read and supervise Columbo scripts. Nice. To ensure that they were as good as they could be. Now, Mankiewicz recalls this a little bit differently Wait, than Falk does. I have one more question. I have one more question. Sorry. <laughs> that, was a, that was a Columbo joke. It's a right. Columbo joke, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, shit. I can't believe I didn't catch that. I'm just in the stream, right? I'm just in the stream, a little piece of driftwood, and you got me. Well done. He got there you pretty go. good. He fucking funny. did. He nailed it, man. Well done, buddy. Anyway, um, yeah. So he was uh, he was paid 7500 per script, um, but he thinks that doing this was really Peter Falk trying to flex a bit of muscle um, because Columbo had good writers. And Mankiewicz yeah. said that in some cases he would add stuff or question stuff just to kind of justify his own his own experience there. Like, I think he was feeling like he was earning money for nothing, you know. But he did work on Columbo a full year doing some behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, another time, Joe Barbera of Barbera Cartoons, yes, that oh, yeah. same guy, yeah. He mm -hmm. wanted to make a film about ambulance driving, of all things. Um, mm -hmm. He wanted Mankiewicz to do some work on the film because he was a Bond writer. Uh, so Mank asked to ride in an ambulance around L.A. for a week and basically sidecarred all sorts of emergency assault and domestic calls. The experience inspired him to write an original script called Mother, Jugs, and Speed. Now, Gene Hackman was the choice for that film, by the way, and he would have done it after meeting with Mank if the studio could wait a couple of months because the way he explains it in the story since the Poseidon adventure Gene Hackman just went project after project after project after project and he was kind of needing to spend time with his family because I think his wife hadn't seen him and there was like problems on the horizon and anyway the studio wouldn't wait so Hackman suggested Bill Cosby do it now that's a strange suggestion but he ended up doing this film Mother's Jug and Mother Jugs and Speed uh, Mankiewicz takes a hit at Scorsese at this particular point in the story because you know Scorsese did Bringing Out the Dead with Nick Cage yes. yeah, and right. yeah. he says yeah. it was a very similar movie but it was a total flop because Mar Martin Scorsese is no good at writing comedy that's what he says <laughs> well 
Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not for me to, to say yes, he's right or wrong. It's just kind of the way he looks at it. Um, 1976, The Eagle Has Landed, uh, based ah. off based off the bestseller Jack Higgins novel. Yep, starred Michael Caine and Donald Sutherland. Uh, this is a funny story, too. Caine was approached to play the IRA agent, but he didn't want to be cast in that light. Um, the best part was the undercover IRA agent, which Donald Sutherland played. We offered the part to Michael Caine first. Michael called me and said, listen, I love the script. I'd like to be in this movie. Um, I'm 42 years old. I had my first child only four years ago. I'm happily married. I don't want to play an IRA agent. There are so many crazy people, and if they think I'm playing it wrong or somebody takes offense, I said, it was in the Second World War, Mike. He said, but still, it's the IRA. On the other hand, I'd love to play the German colonel. I said, I'm sure we'd love for you to do it. Let me talk to John Sturgis. Michael said, isn't it amazing, though? Here we are only 30 years after the Second World War, and a British actor would rather play a Nazi colonel than an Irishman. (laughs) So he played the colonel. Donald Sutherland said, what are they going to do to me? I'm a fucking Canadian. So Donald played the IRA agent. (laughs) There were some wonderful actors, Robert Duvall, Judy Judy Geese, and uh, terrible... Uh, sorry, that terrific woman from upstairs, downstairs, Jean Marsh, Larry Hagman. Uh, it was, in many ways, easily the best script I'd ever written. But Sturges, for some reason, had given up. Michael oh, said yeah, on the Larry set, oh sometimes if he would be behind, he'd say, sure. we don't have to shoot that scene. So I think it was um, it was good. I don't think I don't think Mankiewicz saw his screenplay put to the best use. But anyway, <laughs> moving on, uh, 1977, he was also brought in to help with the deep the Peter Yates thriller from 1977 starring uh, Jacqueline Bissett and Nick Nolte and Robert Shaw. Interesting stuff here to share about um, another Bond villain, Red Grant, Robert Shaw, on the set talking about Steven Spielberg. You want to hear what he thought about that stuff? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I'm just sharing little blurbs as we go by, okay? Um, I asked him about Steven Spielberg, this being Robert Shaw. Is Spielberg really as good as I think he is? I asked. They had, of course, done Jaws together. Shaw said the most prophetic thing. Young Stephen has exquisite taste. He's a wonderful director, but he has one problem. A rather plain-looking fellow, and they're already sending private jets for him, and he's going out with actresses. Stephen will never be able to make a film about a man and a woman, ever. He'll never know know what it's like to sing under a lady's balcony and have a hot tub of shit poured over your head. Never going to happen to him. Shaw was absolutely right. Spielberg is a master filmmaker. E.T., Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, Close Encounters, Jaws. He tried one relationship film called Always. It didn't work. He's never had a love story between a man and a woman. Robert Shaw saw it right away. By the way, Shaw's in my favorite James Bond film, which contains one of the best fights ever. The vicious fight in the train compartment. I'm from Russia with love. I love that picture. It's my favorite Bond. I would spend days with Robert. He never wrote a line. But he wanted to talk to me about all the scenes. Just, just imagine, guys. Uh, imagine in the seventies if, like, uh, Terrence Young was directing a Bond film and Tom Mankiewicz was writing it. Oof, mm. that would have been good stuff. Oh yeah, that would have been interesting. Yeah, I don't know, uh, Terrence Young. Do you think Young would have taken a Mankiewicz script? If if make, uh, Young would have made sure that he Young wouldn't cast people like uh, Britt Eklund and and whatnot mm. in his oh. films either he makes sure those lines were delivered good you know that that's how i personally feel (laughs) Mm -hmm. all right well uh, let's carry on see what else i can share with you uh 1977 this is how he gets on board with superman richard donner's film uh, christopher reeves uh superman the movie Mm -hmm. Uh, he had a reputation as a script doctor and combined with his friendship with richard donner because they were pals for a while that landed him the credit for superman in 1977 essentially without reading too much of it 
um, the original script for Superman the movie was like 400 pages and Mario Puzo had his hand in it uh, as one of the writers and huh. one of the things that Brando got, oh, yeah, yeah, Brando yeah. got on because of Kal-El <laughs> well, potentially but um, he does True tell a good story. he tells a good story about Brando but um, essentially what Donner wanted was somebody to to, to kind of bring it down to earth a bit with some more humor and some more character writing dialogue and stuff like that whole scene between Lois Lane and um, Chris Reeves Superman on the balcony yeah that was yeah. all that's oh. all Mankiewicz that's great, all Mankiewicz great scene mm-hmm. I'm not surprised at all and now mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it like like thinking of Diamonds Are Forever mm-hmm. I can totally see how like just the evolution of him doing a Superman story makes total sense like in terms of dialogue and everything and yeah. uh yeah, I totally see Mankiewicz behind like just how good like the story was in the first Superman film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I can see that. Well, um, let me let me read you a little bit of this then, guys. Uh, at this point in 1977, I had written The Deep, The Spy Who Loved Me, among others. I was the fixer, and I didn't really want to be the fixer. I wanted to do screenplays like The Eagle Had Landed or Live and Let Die, which were completely mine from start to finish. Dick mm. Donner had been a really close friend for so long. I was lying in bed. It was 5 o'clock in the morning. The phone rang, and it was Donner with the most unmistakable voice in the world. He never has to introduce himself. He said, get up, get up. I'm in Paris. I said, Jesus Christ, Donner, it's five in the morning. I know, I'm doing Superman and so are you. No, 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 I'm not doing Superman. What is it, the Superman comics? Absolutely, and you're going to do it, and there's a lady on her way to your house right now with the scripts. Superman and Superman 2. It's two scripts, two movies, and you're too nice a guy. I told her you'd come down and open the door. Oh, shit, I said. The doorbell rang. I hung up on Dick and went downstairs. Here was this nice lady. The two scripts, which anyone could see in the making of Superman featurette on DVD, were between five and six hundred pages long. I looked at them, just looked at them, put them down on the hall table. I went upstairs and the phone rang again. It was Dick. Are you reading yet? I said, no, they're too heavy to get upstairs, Dick. He said, I'll be back tomorrow. Read them. I read them, and they were very campy, although there was some wonderful stuff, too. Mario Puzo had written the first draft. He was not a good screenwriter, but then the producers got Rob Benson and David Newman with Mrs. Leslie Newman. They're very smart writers. Benton is a wonderful writer, but the script went on forever and ever. No comic book character had ever been out on the screen successfully in the history of the movies, and here I was rewriting again, taking somebody else's script. When Dick got back, I called him, and I said, Look, I'd love to work with you. We're friends, but this is not the... Come over to my house, he interrupted, which was very close. Come on over. I went over, rang the doorbell. No one there. I went around the side of the house. I knew his house really well. There was Dick, standing in his garden, looking out at a view of Los Angeles, dressed in a Superman suit that they'd given him. He, <laughs> he turned around and looked at me. I couldn't believe it. He said, Just try on the suit, and you'll do it. He started running at me. The cape was billowing out. I was just laughing. Dick got that infectious enthusiasm. He said, if we can get the love story right, it'll work. It was not stunts or flying. It was, if we can get Lois and Clark and Superman right and make them real, we'll really have a picture. That's true. He goes on then and talks about the Salkines who he had to work for. Um, yeah. Anyway, that and there's some funny shit in there too, because those guys are, well, I didn't know anything about them, but they're an interesting family. Uh, she <laughs> she kept sending rewrites. Uh, Mrs. Salkine kept sending rewrites and uh, called herself the Shakespeare of Mexico <laughs> and was insistent. And on two occasions tried to stab him in a restaurant. Um, and it was Marlon Brando who had to wrestle her to the floor on both of those occasions. <laughs> so cr- crazy Russians, I guess? Or... <laughs> anyway, um, were were, were yeah. the kinds Russians? Or no, maybe they were U- Ukrainian? Or, I'm, I can't remember now. Uh, da, 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 I'm not exactly sure. I'm just going to wiki it really quickly. 
Yeah, go ahead, buddy. Um, because I, I have to justify my like crazy Russian comments. It's like, I want to make sure about that. Because she could just have been just been crazy, you know, and nothing to do with you know where she's from or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alexander Selkind was the son of a. Uh, his mother was a Mexican novelist, and mm -hmm. his father was a Russian immigrant. Uh, who was a filmmaker based in Mexico City, essentially. That's what it was. Yeah, they're very interesting characters, as Mankiewicz remembers them. Difficult to work with. Uh, very yeah. like, very much more promoters than they were producers. Yes. Anyway, uh, this little story here is when uh, Mankiewicz and uh, Richard Donner go up to meet with Marlon Brando about um, playing Superman's dad. And we had to go see Brando. This was one sure of the out. most... This was one of the most memorable meetings we'd ever had. It was in Los Angeles in the late summer, but it was one of those weeks where it was 100 degrees. Dick had a little Porsche with no air conditioning. The top was down. We got up to Mulholland Drive to Brando's house. He shared a driveway with Jack Nicholson. There was a gate, and we got onto the motor court. The front door opened, and all of a sudden, four Dobermans and Rottweilers ran out. We were pulling up at the top of the car, and there, arr, arr, in the doorway appeared Marlon Brando in a caftan. He clapped his hands, and the dogs came running to him. I said, Dick, I think there's a power imbalance going on here. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't seen Marlon since I was a little kid, and he'd done two films for my father, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar and Guys and Dolls. We had called Marlon's best friend, Jay Cantor, who had been an executive with Universal. He'd, he'd been Marlon's, Marlon's agent and was really close to Dick. I knew him well. He had said, tell us about Marlon. Cantor said, on every picture, Marlon's either at your feet or at your balls, so just be yourself, because if he senses fear... So, Marlon was sitting there. We all had a coffee or a drink, and he said, You know, I've been thinking. <laughs> We're up there on Krypton. Maybe we don't like people. Maybe we don't look like people. Dick and I sneaked a glance at each other. He said, Maybe we look like bagels or green suitcases. Oh, God. We had just signed Marlon Brando for $3 million, and he's a green suitcase. He said, And maybe we don't speak. To say this to a writer, he said, Maybe we just make electronic noises and sounds. There are subtitles on the bottom of the screen. We were sitting there and dying, and he said, They're paying me a lot of money, and my kids really want me to do this. They want me to be Jor-El. It's funny, because when you tell a kid a story, they all know the story of Superman. You tell a kid a story, and you say the fox was behind the wall, and then he went and hid behind the tree. The next night, the kids say, tell me the story about the fox, Daddy. Well, the fox is behind the tree. The kid says, no, no, Daddy, the fox is behind the wall. Then he went behind the tree. Kids remember everything. Dick suddenly burst in and said, that's why you can't look like a green suitcase and you can't make electronic sounds because everybody knows Jor-El was on Krypton. Marlon started to roar with laughter. He'd been testing us. He just wanted to see who he was working with. He wanted to see if we were two assholes saying, yes, that's very interesting. <laughs> Electronic sounds? Oh. Mm. And what would they sound like, Marlon? He wanted to see if we were that kind of guy or the other kind of guy. Oh. He laughed so hard when Dick yelled at him because it had been all a huge put-on. Oh. <laughs> that's good. So that's brilliant, actually, because never that's quite clever, yeah. isn't it? That yeah. He can respect Richard Donner as like yeah. someone who who has a vision. Yeah, no, that's, as a, that's good. That's cool. But it was funny though because when I heard when I first when this when you started telling this story, I was like, oh god, is this going to be kind of like uh, Marlon Brando on the set of Apocalypse Now, Marlon Brando, mm. or is this going to yeah. be you know the, the professional <laughs> yeah. uh, Vito Corleone or you know Stanley, what, what, whatever his name was, in you know mm -hmm. uh, on the waterfront, Marlon Brando. You know Did what I mean. You could you imagine if they didn't, if if that didn't go the way they wanted, and then yeah, like no. the next day there'd be like a suitcase and like <laughs> in his bed, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hank yeah. Be like, yeah. oh my god, <laughs> green, a green suitcase. Yeah, yes, Josh, that's what I was getting at. <laughs> um, right. So, last story here about Superman. I know we've kind of focused on Superman a bit, but uh, yeah. So, Chris Reeve has talked about a lot in the story as quite um, not naive. That's not right. Very professional and very lovely to work with, but also very nervous, very shy guy. Anyway, yeah, we were, we were just starting to shoot Superman and Chris was so worried that he was going to be typecast for the rest of his life. He kept saying to me, I got to talk to Sean Connery, you know, Sean Connery, and he's not typecast as bond, but he was typecast as bond. I ran into Sean somewhere. By the way, the kid playing Superman, he wants to talk to you about being tight. Oh fuck. Said Sean. I don't want to talk to him about that. About three weeks later, we were at this big party and Sean was there. So I went over to him. Listen, the guy's over there. You got to talk to him. Okay, okay. So he went over and he said to Chris, well, first of all, if Boyo here is right and you're probably in trouble, it's not going to be a hit. Don't worry about it. You're going to be able to fresh to have a start fresh. If it is a hit and you're Superman, the next two things you do, number one, find a movie that's completely opposite and do it right away which Chris yeah. did. It's a picture called Somewhere in Time, which was a love story. And the second thing you do, because we're talking about if it's a hit, get yourself the best lawyer in the world and stick it to him. That was Connery's advice. <laughs> uh, nice. Right, okay, Superman's a success, obviously. Uh, he says some nice things about John Williams as well. He met him a couple of different times. Uh, in 19... Oh, speaking of John Williams, why don't I share one of my little stories? Because it also, it also involves Mark Snow, the composer for oh, yeah. the X-Files. Oh, nice, yeah. And great other things. Yeah. Yeah, they were pals as well. And this is back in cool. 1977, sorry, 1978, uh, after Superman. Um, Williams is writing the music for Dracula. And that's a great score as well. Not a very popular film, but uh, a very good is that, is score. Is that the Christopher Lee one? Yeah. No, 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 no. That's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Frank Langella. Frank Langella. Oh, oh Frank Langella. Yes. yes, yes, yes. Love Frank so, Langella. Uh, he's yep. just begun work. Mankiewicz has just begun work on the show that became Heart to Heart, which was the Sidney Sheldon idea, right? Originally produced by Aaron Spelling and Leonard Goldberg. Um, you remember Robert Wagner, Stephanie Powers? You know that show about the two amateur detectives? Yeah. I never saw Heart it, to but Heart. No, but right. I know. Heart heart. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's it's Mankiewicz's show, and he just kind of started that. Uh, when I was directing Heart to Heart, I had an office at Fox called a star dressing room that in the old days was for the big stars. It had your own private bathroom, a little outer office, a little inner office. You were out on the lot. You weren't in some office building. My dressing room was connected with John Williams's dressing room. He had just done Star Wars for Fox. We knew each other. John had a big piano in his room. Mark Snow had written the theme for Heart to Heart, and he wanted to play it for me. I asked John, when you go to lunch, can this young guy and I come into your office? He wants to play me the theme. He's going to play it on the piano. John said, absolutely, sure. So he went to lunch, and Mark and I went in. He played me the theme, and it was terrific. On top of the piano, though, was music for Dracula that John had been writing. I left John a note on top of the piano saying, John, thanks so much. I think we found everything we need. Tom. <laughs> About two hours later, John popped his head in the doorway and said, that was a joke, wasn't it? <laughs> the greatest joy of my life is that I had a chance to work with people like that. So the idea being that they went in and just stole his music for Dracula because he left it on top of the piano. <laughs> Williams got three Oscars by that point, right? Yeah. Anyway. Right, so where are we going from here, guys? We're almost there. As a, as a director... Oh, no, I, I'm kind of skipping over another Richard Donner film he did. You might remember Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Matthew Broderick. Oh, Lady Hawk. Rutger Hauer, yeah, Lady Hawk, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he wrote that one as well. Uh, Mankiewicz did start directing uh, 1987 he did Dragonet with Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks and Christopher Plummer 
Uh, he loved doing that movie. Uh, he and Dan Aykroyd got on like a house on fire and they had to make a little pact that uh, Dan Aykroyd wouldn't smoke pot and Mankiewicz wouldn't drink while they were working. Um, it's quite funny. There's a lot of cops on the production of Dragnet, as you can appreciate. And uh, Dan Aykroyd showed up at the very beginning before the, the first day of filming and he, you know, spoke in his, hit his voice, right? His Dragnet voice. And he said to all the cops, he said, I, Web voice, yeah. Yeah, he said, I smoke a lot of pot and... That's just going to be the way it is. <laughs> and the police, the, you know, the officers were like, well, you know, if you like, if we don't see it, we don't see it type thing. And that was kind of how he he prepared the next couple of months of shooting. Right. By getting that out in the open on day one, which I thought was funny. Um, Mankiewicz also directed Delirious with John Candy. Um, he said that was one of the best experiences of his life. He thought John Candy was such a wonderful leader, as he describes it. I loved everybody on the crew. I loved everybody around it. It was the single happiest experience I had. Uh, wow. We were just smart and funny and good. He argues that it wasn't properly promoted, though, or exploited, because MGM was starting to go belly up at that time. And needed buyouts and all sorts of things and they just didn't put the money behind it that they could or should have and that's he thinks it's one of the reasons why it wasn't picked up critically and how some people who like that movie really like it and some people just miss it but he said the humor was just right on target for what they were aiming and he really loves it uh like a lot of other big names mankiewicz also directed uh, tales from the crypt episode in the early days and ah. at the time he was writing this 2008 he was still receiving checks from it because the show had been released on dvd for the first time um yeah richard donner directed one in the first season yes. and, and so did um arnold schwarzenegger <laughs> interesting stuff anyway uh that that's kind of him as a director not as much as the writing but he he seems to have been able after the bond films to choose things he wanted to do a little more than just well, doctoring and yeah, it's cool like he uh, he speaks quite you know, fondly of, of, of all this stuff. Now, there is a, quite a bit in the book about his relationship with Natalie Wood and um, Robert Wagner, who he obviously knew really well, and the two of them, their marriage and their kind of tempestuous relationship. But it was just a tragedy. Uh, he doesn't read anything into it like so many Hollywood reporters did at the time and perhaps still do. Um, yes. The whole idea of like, uh, like every, the way he writes it, everybody who was on that boat, it makes sense that they were on that boat and there's no way he said that um there's no way natalie wood would have would have done herself in as some people have suggested because she was so excited about this broadway show she was doing she was going back to the stage and you know she was drinking you know she couldn't really hold her booze and so and and he also describes what it was like at the house because he was he was essentially a guard at uh, robert wagner's house when uh, they got back and how he had to close everything down from, from, from friends and no one was allowed in. And he was basically just there at the house during all of that sort of fallout after the, the tragedy and what that meant, you know. And so, uh, you know, the way he describes it, it was just the horrible truth of what happened. It wasn't like, oh, this is really what went on or that's really what happened, you know. Um, he doesn't blame anybody. It's just a terrible, perfect storm of events that led to her falling overboard and not being properly... Uh, you know, upheld by flotation devices and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Like, so it, it, I guess he maintains then because he was with Robert Wagner, like, I guess in the morning period, mm -hmm. he probably didn't notice any signs of, you know, fake, I guess, fake grief by Robert Wagner, you know, because oh, I mean, yeah. yeah. he is considered still yeah. suspect number one. Yeah, he, he is. is. He yeah. still yeah. is. Yeah. No, he doesn't. Every, every couple of yeah. years, it comes back being like, oh, there's more evidence against him. Uh -huh. Really? Yeah. 
Uh-huh. No, you're absolutely right, and uh, there's there's no there's certainly no hint of it. I mean, in his writing, but as you say, he's close to the Wagner to the Wagner camp. There's lots of chat in the book, guys, about ritzy hotels, you know, the cars, the treatment he received, Hollywood and abroad. And, you know, that that's, makes it interesting, you know, as, as a story. But I'm, I'm thinking now it's a good time just to go into the Bond stuff. He, in addition to losing his virginity to Joan O'Brien, I don't know if you care about this, but he also had affairs with all sorts of different actresses, uh, Dorothy Provine, Susie Kendall, Carol Liley. Uh, Tuesday Weld, Diane Xalento, who of course was Sean Connery's first wife, and uh, it was Ken Adams. Ken Adams told him, you know, I wouldn't date Sean's first wife if I were you. You could end up dead. <laughs> he said. Well, look, yeah, look, look at what happened to yeah. like uh, Lana uh, Lana Turner's husband, mm-hmm. the mobster. Mm-hmm. Sean Connery beat the fucking shit out yeah. of him. So, uh, in terms of confessions and regrets, like I think in, in maybe just closing this, which is essentially us talking about what else his life memoir is of the many confessions only a few regrets tend to sort of creep up he regretted not marrying or being a father um but he did try to start a family with the actress Susie kendall during their relationship kendall had previously been married to dudley moore um mankiewicz was happy to leave hollywood when he did he stuck to his personal pledge of retirement and he thanks and credits his agents and his assistants for keeping him out of work he had gave them he'd given them that task like i'm retired your job i'm keeping you on the payroll is to make sure i don't work so they just kept they just keep buffering things like yeah he does presentations and dvd extras and interviews and stuff like that and i'm sure Mm -hmm. he would show up at conventions or whatever but he didn't do any more work no more writing nothing like that and on the 31st of july he died of pancreatic cancer um around his friends and family essentially that that's kind of that's kind of it but mm-hmm. uh getting into bond now shall we yeah, yeah I think so yeah i've been kind but, of clunking uh, my way around there of, of his life uh, very fascinating figure for sure and it's someone that you know i think initially a lot of bond fans might dismiss especially if they're not a fan of that mm. era of bond but it's good mm. to know you know the, the people behind it you know may not have produced something that a lot of us liked but yeah, as we can yeah. tell that his heart was into his work, and I really appreciate that. Mm, for sure, he was, and he, he was quite committed to the stuff he did, and that's certainly what comes through the book. But you know, I, I like how he circumnavigated Hollywood. Like, and his dad, I think his uh-huh. grandfather and his dad really helped him in that mindset. Where mm. you know, like Joseph, yeah, Joseph got him his taste. You know, when, when he got into the set, so that he could make his own name for himself. Mm-hmm. And he and he didn't like just become like an actor because like a lot of Hollywood families do or become a producer even you know pushed up all the way to to a producer by nepotism instead you know like he 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 had an opening obviously that some people didn't but he made his opening uh his own in his own way you know Mm -hmm. he uh uh he put the work into it you know and you can say what nepotism claims that got him there but he still put the work into it and you can't deny that i can agree it does seem like he did put his work like he he definitely put the work in as much as like he could have well his dad didn't want him to use the nepotism. He would have been a very good case for nepotism, uh, but it looks like he definitely put the work in. Even like, there was that one story you mentioned that he wrote to sort of, you know, push him in the right direction. Yeah, of course. Others, yeah. Uh, other and and whatever, that's that's fine. <laughs> but uh, it does look like he definitely put in a lot of work, and he was able to uh, obviously make a career and uh, some mm-hmm. lasting films. Whether uh, I, I mean making films on in and scripts and being a, a script doctor to some fantastic films and doing obviously some fantastic rewrites as well. So he, I mean, he, he did a very good career and it, and it is commendable that he was able to 
retire what he wanted to he basically did what he wanted to do and mm. there's a and there's a there's not a lot of i mean i guess there's enough the people we don't know about but it's nice to see someone that was able to through like a hollywood career if you will even though he wasn't necessarily on the screen but he was able to live a life within hollywood but also be sort of separated from it and be able to live his life how he wanted to which some people get sidetracked with booze and drugs and, yeah, and, and totally all that right. kind of stuff and so it, it's kind of commendable that he was able to live like almost a normal life i, I or you know at least uh, a life being in the in i guess the spotlight if you will mm-hmm. and and, uh, and live it to how he wanted to unfortunately obviously uh you know cancer and pancreatic cancer sucks mm-hmm. and dying er, you know obviously he 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 wasn't young but he wasn't old no no not, Dying of cancer is one thing; it's terrible. But he was at least able to live a life that is respectable in a in a in an industry that can you know handcuff you or or put you to one side. Yeah, know. totally. No, you're absolutely, absolutely right, and I think you're right, Jeff. I think maybe growing up watching what happened to his dad with the drugs, even if it was just for a short time, and seeing these big heads, these like people like Judy Garland, you know, who he yeah, remembers, oh, like. Yeah. Seeing all of this stuff would have, you know, helped him steer perhaps his own temptations a little bit, right? I think seeing Judy Garland and like how that, oh man, that's a sad story. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that would probably, that's probably the best example of like, you want to watch like an episode of, uh, uh, what's that show? Intervention? There's there's mm-hmm. one of the best examples. Like if you, you see a Judy Garland and just see how unfortunately her fall from grace and, and how she died obviously prematurely uh, and, and all that kind of stuff, uh, it, it would definitely make it, it would definitely change you. And I, I, I'm guessing that was probably an example probably mm-hmm. right there, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm glad. tale. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that we did that heavy lifting about Mankiewicz because, you know, yeah, fine, we're we're a James Bond podcast and that's kind of what we love, but I also feel as though um, all sorts of content is out there on what he did in the Bond films. They're probably, you know, they are the highlights of his career. They are very well-known, well-studied, well-celebrated scripts, and we're going to talk about them, but the stories of him as a writer and how he got there and what he did with it, I think that's kind of interesting. So I appreciate you guys, uh, your patience through that stuff, and certainly listeners, I know you've been waiting for us to get to the Bond stuff, and <laughs> we're going to get on to it now, but um, hopefully some of that stuff you found interesting. Oh, I think, you know, the, if everyone who's listening to this is a Bond fan, new Bond fan, old Bond fan, either you know a lot or you know very little, mm-hmm. uh, it's always good to broaden your horizon. So, and it, and yeah. it does, it always, it's always fun, because then, you know, so maybe someone, one of one of our, uh, our listeners and fans is a fan of another film, and maybe they didn't know Mankiewicz had something to do with it, or, mm-hmm. or a, a you know, it's just, it's those little nuggets that I appreciate, and then Same that'll yeah. and then that'll open their eyes to something else, and then that'll just sort of cause like a, you know, like a, a domino effect of them mm. looking into other films, and, and that's the kind of stuff that I always gravitate towards. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, I think it's important that we covered all the bases that we did with Mankiewicz in that case, but, yes. uh, and then now we head into the the yeah. Bond aspect of his career, which is obviously. Uh, fabled, and here we go. <laughs> and here we go. How, how did um, Tom Makowitz get involved with the uh, Bond film, Scott? Well, I'm glad you've asked. In 1970, Cubby had a script for Diamonds Are Forever, but Connery turned it down. Broccoli insisted that for the story, he wanted an American writer because Brits couldn't write American gangsters with any sort of dimension. At least that's what Broccoli <laughs> said. Uh, He also wanted a young writer, but somebody who could write the British idiom because of the stock characters that went along with Bond. And so he's kind of looking for a rather finite sort of writer, right? Um, A young guy who can write 
stock British idiom, but also an American because Brits can't write gangsters, that type of shit. Anyway, wouldn't you know it, David Picker, head of production of United Artists, said that he had seen a musical called Georgie, uh, which was premiered in February of 1970. Now, this is based off Georgie Girl. You may remember Georgie Girl from such songs as... I, hey there, is that this one? So far, I'm taking him? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one, right? <laughs> yeah, anyway, so you'll uh, you'll remember Georgie Girl from, from tunes like that. Yeah, the Seekers that did the song, yeah. Uh, that's a James Mason, that's a James Mason uh, film too. James Mason, my uh, my friend. <laughs> my friend. I love James. Say that in James Mason voice. Yeah. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Um, anyway, <laughs> so Georgie was a musical based on the film Georgie Girl from the late 60s, but it was written by Mankiewicz. Tom Mankiewicz wrote the book for the musical. And it was all sorts of... Anyway, I mean, the, the film, do you remember the 66 or 7? I'm going to say 67, but it could have been 66. James Mason, Lynn Redgrave, Charlotte Rampling. Anyway, it featured all British characters, and he convinced Cubby to add T Mankiewicz to his list of potential writers for Diamonds because here's a young American writer who, he's 27 at the time, who's just put out a musical script to a story about British characters, right? So Tom gets a meeting with Cubby at his house, and he met with Guy Hamilton too. He signed on for two weeks to rewrite the first 30 pages of Diamonds Are Forever, just as a test. Uh, he was getting paid $1,500 per week, so that's basically a $3,000 investment in his efforts just to see what he could do. He turned in what he wrote, and he waited. The phone rang, and Cubby said, keep going, and then he hung up. He did not get a lot of praise. He did not get a lot of suggestions at the beginning, just that sort of room to keep rewriting and doing what he was doing. Do his thing, do it your way, and got a bit of vague approval occasionally, like phone calls like that to say, just keep going. Little did Tom know while he was writing that Cubby was actually sending his script portions to Connery, and the first 60 pages were enough to get Connery to come back. <laughs> so clever on Cubby's part, keeping the young writer because I mean let's face it if he knew that Connery was accepting the script and really liking it then his head would have been overblown and Cubby's lost his control over this writer you know I mean he's yes. a very very clever yes. guy right yeah um, Cubby for sure yeah I mean I could read into that if you wanted me to but I, I that's basically the gist of it the Tom Mankiewicz writes writes about how the pages were flying at that time and he was really in a good zone and he thought what he was doing was good and when he got the confirmation of it he was really really happy uh, Mankiewicz admits though that that's just a lucky break because had Pickard not been in the audience and enjoying the writing that he did for that Georgie musical then he'd never have been called in the first place but uh -huh. he credits it as giving him a serious focus as a writer because up until then he did a little bit of this and a little bit of that he, he says that he was a bit of a grasshopper in his approach to work, you know, popping here, popping there. But the Bond film allowed him to really gather himself and concentrate on, you know, something that he knew was going to have an audience, he knew needed to be good, and he knew potentially could stretch on a bit, right, if he did a w good job with it. Um, he got on with both Cubby and Harry, but he felt as though Cubby was the warmer, the more generous, and certainly the more loving figure of them. And I think that's fairly consistent. It corroborates, mm -hmm. doesn't it, with what other people uh, that we've talked about on the show before and what other people in the Bond world have experienced with the two of them. 
Saltzman the tycoon versus yeah. Cubby the paternal figure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom remembers Josh one of these sort of get rich schemes that you, you talk about the tycoon. Like he he purchased the Eclair Camera Company, which quickly went belly up, and he rebounded by buying Technicolor. Now in the year. Oh. In the years since ousting the chairman of Technicolor and assuming the role, the company's stock, it had been selling at $30 when he bought it, dropped to 22 marks, uh, and then it dropped 22 marks to a measly $8. Saltzman was um, first two years, or sorry, he was fired two years later, and when he got fired by Technicolor, the, he was furious. He's like, how could these fuckers do that to me? And he was reminded that that's exactly what you did when you knocked the other chairman out. Oh. And that was, that was it. I think Saltzman just you know he wanted to be that howard hughes type figure didn't he he really um, did oh speaking of howard hughes uh he, he's got a funny story in there about um his dad joe mankowitz uh with howard hughes too maybe we'll uh maybe i'll share that at a different time <laughs> anyway yeah well I, I mean i could i guess uh, just i'm not going to read it but i'll just tell you that uh, um yeah we'll get there when we talk about willard white uh, Mankiewicz remembers gambling a lot with Cubby in Vegas, betting $20 to every 2000 that Cubby would put down. Uh, when he lost, Cubby would always tip heavily. And Tom asked him, he's like, why, why are you doing that? Like, why are you tipping big when you've lost? And Cubby's response, listen to me. In your life, you're going to have a lot of successes and you're going to have some failures. You're going to go up and down, but you know what? First, you have to be a gent. Cubby uh, was... Cubby like was big on manners yeah and cubby told mankiewicz a story about what george lazenby had done in switzerland to this poor shop attendant lazenby goes into a store in switzerland apparently he wanted to buy a gun uh, but because he was a foreigner they wouldn't sell him a gun and this guy essentially makes the girl work in the counter sell him the gun okay and later she gets in big trouble for that and when it gets back to george george says well she didn't have to sell me the gun and that always pissed Cubby off because he's like, man, you just don't do that to people. You yeah. just, you know, you don't, you don't pressure someone into doing something. That's and then a when, real dick move. That's a dick yeah. move. And that's anyway, a huge dick move. Yeah. So uh, while filming in Las Vegas, Tom Jones was playing at Caesar's Palace. This is quite a cool story, I thought. It was Oscar season at the time, and Tom Jones does a pretty cool thing. He flies up all the British nominees to Las Vegas for a special show on his own dime, gets some tickets and all that stuff. Anyway, at the time, Connery and Jill St. John were sort of, well, Mankiewicz says they were keeping company. Um, but Connery didn't want to go in with her and be seen, so he told Mankiewicz to go in with her and that he'd creep in undercover to watch Tom Jones play. Uh, he wore farmer's overalls, no toupee, so potentially a chance of not being noticed. But Tom Jones spotted him and out of the same outfit he had in Never Seen Ever Again. <laughs> I found the same not thing. Really. Yeah, I'm, pic <laughs> I'm picturing something similar. But uh, Tom Jones spots him and outs him, and then the whole place erupts. Uh, obviously, he, 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 you know, he would have known it at the time, but he conveys in his autobiography the idea that it wasn't until he saw with his own eyes the auditorium of award winners and nominees all cheering for Sean Connery at a Tom Jones show that he understood just how big of a star Connery actually was like he knew he was big but he didn't really understand it until he saw that auditorium and everybody who was there in Las Vegas to watch Tom Jones who's probably one of the biggest if not the biggest musical number at the time right they all went nuts for Sean Connery and he's like wow holy shit like this guy is really big Elizabeth Taylor her $1 million contract for Cleopatra was huge, and Connery's $1.2 million contract for Diamonds was huge. And it's neat that both Joe and Tom were involved in the biggest Hollywood mm -hmm. contracts. I think that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, Mankiewicz re reckons that only about 45 minutes of Diamonds Are Forever actually corresponds to Fleming's source material. The other 80 are just pure imagination on his part, born out of a reclusive Blofeld plot inspired by the real-life Howard Hughes. Not only had Cubby once worked for Hughes, but uh, he was like an agent or something, but Joe Mankiewicz also had his involvement with him which passed down to his son in a true life story. Uh, I think that this little bit is worth reading, and it might be the last time we talk about Joe Mankiewicz, but think Howard Hughes, think um, Willard White, okay? <laughs> in, the, in Diamonds Are Forever. So uh, here we go. Dad knew Howard Hughes well in the 30s. After all, Hughes had bought the rights to the Philadelphia story for his then paramour, Catherine Hepburn. He was far from reclusive at the time, having affairs with many actresses and being conspicuously visible about town. By the early 50s, he changed, leading a much more secretive life. Dad and Mum were in L.A. shortly before the Contessa, uh, before Contessa started shooting. As usual, Dad hadn't let his script be widely circulated. Only a few chosen ones had read it. One night, though, he got a phone call. It was Howard Hughes. He wanted to see Dad and would send a car over and a driver to get him. Dad figured out that somehow Hughes had read or had gotten wind of the script. He was privately furious, but he agreed to meet him. Mum was terrified. Who knew what Hughes would do? He was a crazy man. Why did Dad have to go, and why didn't Hughes come over to see him? Dad told her to calm down. Howard's not going to kill me, I promise you, he said. The limousine arrived. It took Dad to an unfinished section of a freeway past red warning cones that had been pushed over to the side. The limo stopped. Another limo arrived and flashed its lights. Dad left his car and joined Hughes, who immediately came to the point. He wanted Dad to drastically revise the character of the producer and totally eliminate the scene where he was hit in the head with the vase. I'll do what I can, Howard, Dad said. That's all I'm asking for, Hughes replied. Dad exited the car and was driven home. He never changed a word of the script, and he never heard from Hughes again. There's one line in the film that I always thought succinctly summed up Dad's attitude towards the motion picture industry. It's a scene where, the Bog where Bogart has just screened Gardner's first film for a group of movie exhibitors. Their names like Mr. Black, Mr. Brown, Mr. Green, Mr. White, and so on. They like the film and they agree to show it. Gentlemen, says Bogart, it's a wonderful art we're doing business in. So Howard Hughes putting the screws to Joe Mankiewicz when somehow he secretly got access to that Contessa, Barefoot Contessa script, not liking the way that character was uh, was created. But Tom Mankiewicz, 20 years later, 30 years later, goes away and uh, writes the character of Willard White based on Howard Hughes. Uh, when the production moved to London, Cubby had to let him go at that point. That's because the heads of UA were breathing down his neck saying, hasn't this guy finished writing the script? We're paying his living allowances. David uh -huh. Picker said to Cubby, between me and you, didn't Mankiewicz stop writing like 20 weeks ago? At 27 years of age, though, guys, Mankiewicz living it up, getting tables wherever he wanted, basically sleeping with all sorts of anybody and anything he wanted. He says, I was the fucking James Bond writer. I was so happy. I could fuck my brains out. It was during that time when you slept with someone as a thank you for a wonderful evening and in no place more than London. When you're at that age, things like that do mean a lot to you. <laughs> in, in total, he spent 40 weeks with the production before Cubby felt enough pressure to cut him off, uh, but he did promise that they'd talk about doing the next one. He didn't really leave, though. Jill St. John got upset when they found out that Tom Mankiewicz was going away because she had befriended him, so he moved in with her, uh, and at that time, Mankiewicz would often run into Michael Caine and Frank Sinatra, both of whom were dating Jill St. John at the time, as well as Connery. Um, fun, fun fact, Mankiewicz himself is dating Connery's first wife at this time, Diane Salento. A uh, few people found out about it, including Ken Adam, uh, who said, I would not do that. You're going to get killed one day. <laughs> Years later, there was an awkwardness when Sean and Michelin ran into Mankiewicz at a restaurant. They were also in company with Sean's son from Diane, who remembered him dating his mom. 
<laughs> He's still not sure if Connery ever really knew what was going on, but uh, he never told him. Anyway, Diamonds was the second billing for Mankiewicz, even though he did the bulk of the writing and the heavy lifting and the rewrites, Maybaum's alphabetical positioning put him first. He did not count though, or sorry, he didn't care. Tom Mankiewicz says that Dick Maybaum was an awesome dude, they got on wonderfully, there was no bad or competitive word in this book about him whatsoever. Um, uh, yeah, so that's that's basically him on Enduring Diamonds Are Forever. I thought maybe now I would uh, ask you guys to share some of your favorite moments from Diamonds. Maybe just five or six minutes, you know, we share some lines and then we move on to Live and Let Die. I really like the dialogue between Mr. Winton and Mr. Kidd. I think it made mm. them very interesting villains and one of the highlights of the movie for me, with the exception of their unfortunately... Uh, stereotypical and uh, un just, just uh, I guess, just the shoddiness of how their death was betrayed, though, at the end. Yeah, yeah. But, but they were menacing from the get-go. Like, and I really enjoyed their scenes. I loved how the dialogue, you know, like you could tell they were a couple, but they were also seems like they were intellectual equals. And I yeah. can tell mm -hmm. that Mankiewicz really enjoyed writing them. Uh, well, they were intellectual per se, because you know how Mr. Wind screws up with the uh, with the aftershave, but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, or, yeah. The, or the perfume, I should say. The comedic dialogue, I really like the exchange when uh, Bond arrives in Vegas and then he's taken in the limo and uh, he's Peter Franks at this point and, you know, and they're bringing the, and the gangsters under Shady Tree mm -hmm. or I guess with Tiffany Case, they're bringing him to the slumber funeral home and <laughs> that was just awesome dialogue. Like I found Mankiewicz's dialogue is really good and the dialogue between Bond and Tiffany Case is really mm -hmm. good too. But I found that for some reason... I think maybe Jill St. John was overdoing it or she was trying to sound too American. I don't know. It's funny mm. you mentioned how Mankiewicz was hired on because British people can't write American gangsters. I think Tom Mankiewicz wrote the gangsters the same way that what's his name? Maybom did back in Goldfinger. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you, you know what I mean? Like there was no difference yeah. between them. They were still stereotypical American. Yeah, yeah, gangsters. Goldfinger. What's going on here, Goldfinger? Ah, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. Exactly. Like I found no difference. I mean, Mark Lawrence was really good as like that, as like, the, I didn't know there was a pool down there. I mean, that, that, that's yeah. a great line. And I like that you, line. Yeah, that's a good one. And see Mark Lawrence at the beginning of The Man with the Golden Gun, right? Because mm -hmm. he was the um, the assassin that Knickknack hired to take out mm -hmm. Scaramanga, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What about you, yeah. Jeff? Uh, to be honest, it's funny. I was going to say, I said this before, I think I was mentioning this to you before. Uh, is that I, I seem to appreciate the conversations that um, the Mankiewicz would write with sort of secondary characters, mm. whether it's Bond uh, speaking with... I do I do appreciate the Mr. Wentz and Mr. Kidd. Um, I, I like them as characters. Like I know that some of it is a bit... Uh, the, the relationship is good, and I appreciate what it is for the time. Um and I, I liked I like how they were written. The the script was kind of cheesy, but I also understand like that's how it's done. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I appreciate Mankiewicz's writing overall, but I I, I think he writes secondary characters quite well mm, yes. uh, and, and so that's and that's where I, and that sort of that's my uh, that's my take on it but mr went and mr kid i appreciate they kind of feel almost like tarantino characters <laughs> yeah they kind of yeah. i can kind of see that yeah. actually that's yeah. a good yeah, that's a good comparison and, uh, and when you see them with that it's for some reason when i see them walking together i almost it, it reminds me of the the end scene in like clark uh not clark's uh Mallrats. like i just i want to picture like them holding like a monkey between them and walking into a sunset. <laughs> yeah. 
Say what you, say what you want to. <laughs> That's totally yeah, true. Yeah, I could get that. Now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, 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 I don't know. I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and see what you wanted about Jill St. John, too. Like, I found that Manquitz gave her good dialogue. Like, I never found that she was like a damsel in distress like character. I mean, no. she was stronger in the first half of the movie, mm-hmm. but even then, like, it seems like Manquitz was given a more of a comedic element and acknowledging that she was kind of tongue in cheek, the damsel mm-hmm. in distress. But he still kind of made her a fun character all the way through. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you can I can say maybe Jill St. John maybe didn't quite deliver the screwball dialogue uh, against Connery as good as she could have. Right. But I, I enjoyed her character, I think, in the movie overall. Yeah, uh, it, particularly it, more so than Charles Gray's Blofeld, which was just a, a mistake. But that wasn't really Mankiewicz's fault. No, yeah, yeah. And again, you, there's definitely like a lot of tongue-in-cheek, like you were saying, um, with, with Mankiewicz's writing, which... It is good. Sometimes I I find it kind of falls flat, but uh, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like there, I mean, obviously there is a, there's a skill to it, and he does he it does come off, uh, it does come off very well in, in in certain places. But I think you're also right that it's sometimes it's not the writing; it, it's sort of how it's delivered by the individual. So mm-hmm. yeah. it's also the audience that he's writing for. Uh, exactly, it has to be considered, right? It's correct, a different audience. Correct, correct, correct. Yeah, people aren't. Yeah, the bond has gone to a point where it's huge. This is also the point too, where they were thinking of making with diamonds are forever. Where before they got Connery back, they were thinking of getting jo- uh, James Brolin to play Bond, and they wanted to introduce an American Bond. Right. And you can sort of see that in initially with Diamonds Are Forever mm-hmm. on how it feels more yeah. like an American Bond film For more sure. than the, than the previous Bond films, in my opinion. Some of the scenes are still like as they're written, the scenes are quite silly. Like. Obviously, Blofeld, Humphrey. Blofeld, and Drag, and I mean that's that's yeah. just that stuff is really that 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 doesn't hold up too well for me, and not just because no. not just because of how you know derogatory it is, it, it doesn't yes. hold up well for me as as part of the Bond canon. It just seems really silly, right. like you Absolutely. know what I mean. Um, I do, however, really like the line where uh, Connery meets um, Tiffany Case, and he says, "That's quite a nice little nothing you've almost got on." Or you're almost wearing, or something <laughs> like that. I, I really like that line. I think that's yeah. really good. Uh, he writes good lines. He writes the good humor, but I think he really gets into his wheelhouse with uh, Live and Let Die. So shall we yes. move on to that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. After Diamond, uh, Saltzman particularly really wanted Burt Reynolds, but Cubby refused, saying he was too short. He insisted the Bond had to be tall. Plus, he wasn't British. Um, Guy Hamilton and Cubby both want to make it back. They like the lighter touch on the dialogue that he had produced. And I guess seeing where the franchise would be heading with Roger Moore in the role didn't have to fight too hard to get him back. They did try, though, I should say, early after Diamonds to get Sean Connery back. But, nah, he wasn't being pushed. And the fuck-off tunes started playing on his answering machine, I think, by this point. (laughs) Saltzman wanted to negotiate Mankiewicz's contract. Uh, he and Cubby tended to trade responsibilities film to film, in a sense, and this was her, his turn to deal. Uh, Tom's agent at the time, Robin French, negotiated him a hundred grand, which was fifty thousand more than Saltzman originally offered. The story of Tom's eavesdropping in on the phone is hilarious, by the way, um, and that was enabled by Saltzman's own assistant, Sue Parker. Uh, it's unnecessary to share, but it's funny. Uh, let it be known that Tom arrived and got his hundred grand, even though Mank. Uh, Salzman didn't want to pay him that much. Uh, with that money, Tom bought a house in the city, Los Angeles, and with the insurance that came from his live and let die salary. Uh, yeah, his dad was doing Sleuth at the time, starring Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine, and this was the only time that father and son ever shared sound oh. stages. Yeah, uh, they worked on the same lot, but different movies. Ken Adam did the set for that one, too, interestingly enough. Uh, sense. Yeah, Live and Let Die needed seven sets, though, compared to the one set by um, 
for Sleuth. During pre-production, Joe said to Tom that he was done with films. Cleopatra had ruined him and he wanted to go out on a high like Sleuth. Cast and director nominations for that movie. I want to see that now. You know, I want to see Sleuth. Um, It was as good as it's going to get, Joe said to his son. And Tom remembers his dad uh, taking a long time to get off drugs. And that part of the story kind of goes into the Burton Taylor affair and we'll skip over that because I feel like it's not really connected to what we're doing but that was it's kind of funny you know Live and Let Die comes in Tom's starting to ascend and his dad's star is just retiring you know it's quite interesting yeah. the way that happens passing the torch kind yeah. of thing during the production guys Mankiewicz got really into tarot reading like really into it and obviously he's written a lot of that into the story um, and you know what I didn't know until I looked at this I'm so stupid I'm sure thousands of Bond fans have seen this I haven't seen it do you know the scenes do you know that the cards the tarot cards that Solitaire is using I've got 007 in white script on red print it's all 007 <laughs> I never knew that uh, what okay. no. Oh, wow, pause, pause the scene when she's flipping over the cards it's as clear as day 007 all over the fucking cards <laughs> I'd never noticed it before <laughs> wow never noticed it before anyway yeah, i think i did i just did, i just discounted for some reason like uh, my i just like my brain just like d- disconnected from it well at parties um mankiewicz got really popular into you know he got so well known for doing tarot readings that he uh, he got really pissed off with it actually because people kept bugging him to do their <laughs> fucking tarot readings <laughs> uh including michael kane and his wife and uh, michael kane actually went as far as setting them up a table at the back of one of his parties and getting him to do all of his pals' tarots. And uh, Michael Caine's wife still thinks he's some creepy magician because he uh, managed to tell her stuff. Shakira managed to tell her stuff all about um, herself. And anyway, uh, I'll skip over the well-known stories, guys. We know about the location shooting because we did Cubby's Corner on it. Um, Mm -hmm. All the cool stuff that Mankiewicz was part of there. We'll skip over all of that. Um, Roger Moore's introduction to the press in Jamaica is quite interesting as uh, Mankiewicz remembers it, but uh, we can skip over it. It's, it's really just how different he was, like how well he handled the questions about how does it feel to be following up with Tom, uh, Sean Connery and all this sort of stuff and how Roger Moore handled that so expertly in Tom's eyes. And I mean, they had a great friendship during these um, during these films. Uh, about the film itself, Solitaire was originally written black in the screenplay. Uh, Mankiewicz really wanted to promote the sort of racial card and he actively sought to do so um, when Hubby when, when Cubby and Harry asked him what film he wanted to do he jumped straight at Live and Let Die and I never knew that uh, I, I didn't know that Mankiewicz had a say in what film they were hmm. going to do what book they were going to adopt but he did um, yeah sounds that way anyway Diana Ross was interested as Josh told us during our review of the film and being a Bond girl um, Mankiewicz's first draft had someone like her in mind Uh, But it was David Picker, the UA head, who put the kibosh on the idea. And his objections probably made sense. Like, this was Roger Moore's first movie. And if Diana Ross, who was arguably a bigger star, was going to become the Bond girl, then that new Bond might just be overshadowed, you know? Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Um, More troubling, though, I think there's, like, the interracial aspect to things. Picker maintained that he couldn't release the film if the characters slept together. And Picker said, when you have James Bond deflowering a black virgin played by Diana Ross, I'm not so sure you guys want to do the Detroit opening of that one either. Oh, yeah, that's fair. Uh, (laughs) But the way he remembers it is having really succeeded in straddling that knife edge, you know, between the racial pressure and the black exploitation pride. Like Mankiewicz was quite proud of the script because he tested it with black audiences and he said that they thought it was great. Now, that's how he remembers it. But yeah. 
Uh, anyway. Remember that article that I brought up when we did Live and Let Die mm-hmm. uh, yeah. about yeah. how, for example, like, you know, the black exploitation films, what they right. did was they, they took those negative black stereotypes of the pimp, the hustler, the, yeah. the drug dealer, the, the gangster or whatever, and they made them and uh, what they did was they made them into into main characters and with their own stories and backgrounds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what black exploitation was all about. But at the same time, I think Makowicz, when he was writing Live and Let Die, was also showing how those are negative stereotypes to give to black mm-hmm. people in the first place. Yeah, so yeah. by showing them in Live and Let Die as the villains, as they are not portrayed in the black exploitation films, even though you have a film that looks like a black exploitation film, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a subversion there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he does describe it as walking a tightrope. He knew what he was trying to do. Uh, and a couple of critics really applauded him for it, including Vincent Canby in the New York Times. I don't know if that's one of the reviews that we shared at the time, but he, he couldn't quite figure out how this script managed to work. But it worked really well because the agencies were kind of double twisted, you know, the, the character agencies. Yeah. Yafet Kodo, uh, we talked about. It was a big had, part. Yeah, it was a big part, but he had he had reservations. He had reservations. And can you really blame him? Like, for fuck's sakes. No. Yeah, he's inflated like yeah, a balloon and popped. Uh, you know? yeah. Anyway. Uh, so what else can I say about Live and Let Die? As much as he loved, I think, and, and learned from Connery, Mankiewicz really, really seemed to enjoy the freedom of writing for more. He says yeah. that Roger Moore had a more theatrical way about him, whereas Sean would always throw away the throwaway lines. Roger would like to play with them. And mm. the kinds of sadistic things that Sean could do, Roger couldn't. Like, he just didn't have that twinkle of violence in his eyes, but he would try out any line that was written, and he was much more playful when it came to, yeah, let's give this a shot. Uh, he also says that Roger Moore was a sophisticated actor and could convince on uh, anybody some of the lighter lines in a way that Connery just couldn't because the jokes fell flat when they were uttered by right. a guy of that kind of intimidating physicality, I think. Yeah. Well, I, think I think it comes yeah. down to, sorry, I was just going to say, I think it just comes down to Moore has a bit more humility and he's got, he's, yeah, he's, got yeah. a little, he's got more humor to him, right? Because, yeah. uh, I mean, Connery's not known as being funny he mm-hmm. uh, really i mean he no. can't he can be but if you look at the two forget it like yeah obviously yeah you know more has that more uh he has a little more humility and he's got more of a, a smirk when he delivers his lines like the tongue-in-cheek <laughs> kind of yeah. stuff right and so Very and much. that and that comes off in the manicula scripts mm-hmm. for sure it does well live and let die was completely his own i think um as he explains it anyway diamonds was about 80 percent his own when he took over he really enjoyed doing this one from start to finish and uh they were really pleased with the script um yeah i mean check out our episode on live and let die cubby's corner josh goes in a lot of detail about the production of that yes, and a yes. lot of a lot of his book mankowitz's telling of it is kind of doubled on it as well but the the stuff that he did with roger moore the the kind of jokes and fun that they had was, is really well chronicled and uh yeah i mean that that that's that let's just share some share some favorite moments from live and let die guys i i i well i'm just gonna say um no, specifically the the lines I can't remember, but it's no, no, the, the scenes, opening. Yeah, the it's scenes. the the opening scene, like when it shows. And now, obviously, we're watching it 47, 46 years after yeah, it came yeah. out. Uh, a young uh, Roger Moore, uh, you know, in his kitchen. That whole uh-huh, scene uh-huh. was fantastic. You know, yeah, it was, it was good, wasn't the, it? The, the coffee scene and the espresso. I thought that was a great. I thought that was a great scene, and I liked his lines, and I, I thought that was a, kind of a nice... Good shout. Mm. Yeah. And, and a good introduction to Roger's Bond, Jeff, because... I, I, I think exactly so. with M. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, like, I, I think it was really important, and I, I really... I, I think that's a really memorable scene as well. It's, 
it, it's really important, right? And so this is almost mm-hmm. like a test. And I think it, I think it was uh, very positive, at least in my opinion. Like it was a really, really good scene and well written. I mean, there wasn't a huge dialogue, but it was important. And I think that uh, Moore hit all the right notes. And obviously, with Mankiewicz's script and how it was filmed, that, that was uh, that opening scene in, in the apartment in the kitchen was uh, was very strong. Yeah, that was a good example, I think, of like, we're showing right now that even after the opening sequence, we're showing a James, we're showing a different type of James Bond here. Yeah, we have exactly. Bond with the Italian agent who's supposedly, who the, the Italian agent, a secret service is looking for, M arriving in the middle of the night. Make, it's like a whole awkward, like, situation that was created yeah. there with the money penny coming in. It's already telling us with Manko as a script what type of Bond movie we're now looking, we're now yeah, making. Yeah, totally. Right. And I like how it also plays on the continuity of the previous Bond films by reestablishing the relationship between Bond and M mm-hmm. as if it was yep. carrying on from before. But this yep. time, M is less of like a, an, uh, he's more of like an exasperated father figure now yes. to, yeah. or exasperated teacher to the unruly student mm-hmm. or, or, or something to Roger Moore's Bond, right? He's more like you, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They, yeah, they kind of create a Q relationship with mm-hmm. it. Uh, and then you have that whole sequence, that whole line of dialogue I love really too about like how, I mean, who in Man with the Golden Gun, what, we'll, we'll get to there, but there, there's another uh, greater change between the two of them as well. But um, overall, yeah, that scene to me establishes what they're going forward uh, on what Bond will be. Mm-hmm. I also like the dialogue that he gives more, uh, Bonds more between other characters. Like, I still, I still maintain that uh, David Hedison in Live and Let Die is my favorite Felix Leiter, just on the basis of how professional Hedison was running the CIA like yeah. team that he had, and then how he interacted with James Bond. Like you really believe okay. their friendship in that movie. And That's uh, true. yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of Hedison down the road when he came back and live in no. uh, License to Kill. No, uh, but he was he worked really well in um, mm-hmm. uh, Live yeah, and Let I Die. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, agree uh, I found that I found. I don't think Jane Seymour was up for it as an actress for the kind of the dialogue that Mankiewicz was writing for her and yeah. Bond in those yeah. scenes. So I find I find their scenes a bit problematic for mm-hmm. many reasons. Uh, but overall, everything else, I think, worked so well with the movie. All the dialogue, especially the interactions between Kananga and Bond. There was kind of a, a respect between them on both ends. Like, one was a worthy adversary back and forth. And mm-hmm. there, besides the balloon, derogatory balloon sequence uh, at, the, yeah. at the very end, I didn't find that like the movie was looking down on Kananga as a villain. Like, I think it was kind of like the movie enjoyed him as a villain for the movie, mm-hmm. despite, you know, his skin color. I would agree. I would agree with you on that. Yeah. Uh, and like what you were saying, um, just if I can just touch upon like sort of the, the, um, with the Roger Moore, uh, Bond films. Uh, it, I think you're hitting the nail on the head here when you talk about the more exasperated M. Uh, they they have that relationship, and with Mankiewicz's films, like if we go, if you look at in the order of them, like M just gets more and more sort of like almost like fed up, like a father figure, like okay, like as you go forward, because you'll notice. I, I definitely noticed it in in Man with the Golden Gun, and uh, and also in um, in. Uh, oh. The uh, oh my goodness, the okay. spy who loved me, yeah. Wow, I totally had a brain fart there. I, I think, guys, you know, just before we leave, living that die, my favorite 
my favorite scene in the story and I really like the way it's written. I like the way the actors deliver it as well, um, including Solitaire, simply because it's not a lot for her character to be delivering. I love the introduction, the meeting with Kananga, you know, going into the bar, dropping down, and then the way Moore plays and holds that scene, even when oh, he's yeah. flirting with Solitaire and, and, and uh, Kananga comes out, or Mr. Big rather comes out. And I think that whole scene is written and delivered, yeah. performed really, really well. I really like that stuff. I, I, I think agree. I think Live and Let Die is 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 um is a great movie. I know it's it's, it's a top of one of my mo- uh, of our of our list when we did our rankings. It's up there mm-hmm. on mine. I I really liked it and I thought it, that was good. But yeah. it's very watchable. And, and when you yeah. go back and watch it, it there's, there's there's more scenes that you appreciate. Like I just love Roger Moore as James Bond in New York City. He's yeah. walking around in his suit with his black yeah, yeah. gloves on and totally yeah. unflappable all the way through. You know what I mean? And uh, mm. just even that even the scene where like uh, he's, he meets Solitaire for the first time and then Mr. Big comes out going names of a tombstones baby and yeah. then, <laughs> and then and take, take this holiday outside and waste him and then like he's being carried away and then he's like you know Roger Moore's bond is unflappable like he doesn't look scared whatsoever he's making he's flirting with Solitaire as he's leaving you know like <laughs> yeah he's uh, like he's like wasted is, uh, is that a good thing <laughs> that's, that's not a good yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah and then the guys are dragging him under the oxters and he's like oh, i shan't be long <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah i really like that stuff and that, that's the different bond and that's a fun mankowitz at play well yeah, guys exactly. what about the man with the golden gun i mean i don't have a lot here to say i'm very close to the end of my notes you'll be pleased to know everyone but <laughs> live and let die opens and it's a hit the man with the golden gun is greenlit almost immediately and right. mankowitz already knows that he's back at it um, now, a lot of the script had been written by the time Cubby called Mankiewicz over to Hong Kong. He was writing a lot of it in America. Um, inspiration for High Fat and Low Fat, the characters, came from a famous man named Run Run, who ran the Shaw Studios, where the Chop Saki movies were made. Mm, that's right, yeah, right. Sir Run Run Shaw, yeah. That's absolutely. right, Sir Run Run Shaw. Well, this guy was the first Asian to ever be knighted, Josh, and he could apparently uh-huh. he could apparently get anything, anytime he wanted. Now, Mankiewicz uh-huh. is really hush on any details of a relationship between Sir Run Run, his studios, or the Bond production team, but he, he does tell the story of how a member of Run Run's family had been kidnapped, and uh, about the time that they were there, and though the police couldn't find the missing person, they did find the kidnappers' bodies all hacked up to death in the back of one of Run Run's three identical Rolls Royces. Run Run's brother huh. was called Run Me, who worked out of Singapore. Uh, Shaw Studios eventually gave up on the martial arts filming, bowing to Golden Harvest competition. But uh, I was going to say Golden yeah, Harvest is the yeah. one. But the family still p- stayed popular and lucrative in media broadcasting. And I don't know what the holdings are today in Shaw Studios or what it could be now that it's been either bought out or rebranded. But um, yeah, the, so the high fat and low fat characters came from Sir Run Run and his brother. Uh, they did spend time at the Bottoms Up Club when they were doing production there. A lot of gambling, a lot of drinking, and I gotta tell you, it's fairly raunchy. And the way it's depicted in the film is raunchy, and it would seem it was equally as raunchy in real life. I I mean, I think they're hush-hush on really what went on there, and that's that's that. Uh, But he does write about it in, in quite a salacious way. Like, he he was pretty disgusted by a lot of what he saw when he was over there, that type of... That type of exploitation. Yes. Though, though he loved the travel and the luxury of the production hotels and whatnot, Mankiewicz wasn't really getting along with Guy Hamilton so well towards the end of this. They, they didn't have a fallout. There was no big argument or anything like that, at least not one that Mankiewicz is unprofessional enough to talk about. Um, he just sort of felt tired, I think, with the relationship. He, he felt like Guy wasn't really 
digging into him the way he was before, into his writing anyway. Uh, he And I think at this point, too, he was wanting to do things other than James Bond. Um, Cubby understood. Uh, by the time the script was basically finished, he he left. Richard Maybaum came on just to polish a few things at the end of it all. And when they finished shooting, the first thing that Cubby and Guy did, they called up Mankiewicz and they invited him to dinner at Cubby's place. And as Mankiewicz writes it, quote, the Bonds were a club. Cubby made it that way. The same sound men, by and large, a lot of the same cameramen, the same people on the cruise. Cubby knew everybody's name, the names of their kids. So you belonged to a club. You were part of a fraternity. And it was amazing. I think that there was no bad blood between him and Hamilton, but Mankiewicz wanted to leave. And he wanted to leave, I guess, because he wanted to do other things. And by the time you've written three Bond scripts, or you've polished one, you've written two... I guess he was feeling like he just wanted to try other things because, as everyone says, they are fun, but they are intensive projects to work on. Yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, so before we skip over that, Jeff, give your first crack at your favorite bits of The Man with a Golden Gun, Mankiewicz scenes, Mankiewicz lines. So I had had mentioned earlier, like, I I seem to, uh, at least on a personal level, I I seem to appreciate the dialogue between Bond, uh, or I find that at least Mankiewicz, the ones that I gravitate towards are are not necessarily, like, sort of Bond with, you know, the larger characters, like the, 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 you know, the villains. I Mm -hmm. seem to like the the secondary characters, like, the the ones that really uh, sort of uh, stuck with me for The Man with the Golden Gun is I really enjoyed the... uh, the quick, but uh, but I, in my opinion, it was it was a lasting scene was with Lazar in Macau. The conversation mm-hmm. about the bullets, yeah, that's sort great. of interrogation. That's great. I thought that's it was great. really well done. Yeah, um, the whole thing, like right? That. The whole thing, the whole play out, the way it's acted to, yeah. the physical acting, the way the use of prop. It's very much the like blocking. that scene, the blocking. Yeah, the way. Well, that's the, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's good. I, and I mean, like obviously, there's tongue in cheek, and you know, there's quick. Uh, there's there's funny little uh, you know dialogue like obviously uh, oh I seem to have lost my charm and, and you know Bond's like that was from where I'm standing and I I, I thought that was great you know and mm-hmm. he pulls on his he pulls on his collar like it's you know it's that kind of jokey thing yeah but uh, I appreciate it I really appreciated that scene with Lazar uh, after watching you know again watching it recently as opposed to when we had uh, originally done the podcast for Man with the Golden Gun um, and as much as I I, I hate. J.W. Pepper, I actually seem to appreciate the scenes with him a little more this time, as yeah, much as yeah. I, I I don't... Like, I find his, car- his caricature is kind of a throwaway in American stereotypes that doesn't necessarily need to be in a Bond film. Sure, yeah. And I, and I, and I know that they were just trying to bring him in again, obviously being in, in uh, Live and Let Die uh, previously. Mm-hmm. I did appreciate sort of almost... I appreciated the J.W. Pepper... And him just sort of like the how Pepper wanted to help Bond as much as he was being like a, a you know a racist, bigoted, um, mm-hmm. arrogant American mm-hmm. tourist, which obviously you know. Um, yeah, like but, like he would ever go there. Like yeah, Pepper like, would why, ever travel to Thailand. Yeah, like him and his, like, could you just imagine his was like, I like to go to Thailand. Like, why would <laughs> yeah. you want to go why there? Why the fuck would you want to go there? Anyways, but. You I did appreciate, like, when he got in the car and he just wanted to help on. Like, at first, right. like, he's like, he looks familiar. And you, you'd think that, like, he'd probably be pissed off with him because he made him look like an ass previously. But then yeah. when he's like, oh, he, you know, Bond's trying to do something and he kind of clues in. He's like, I'm a cop. I want to help. So I appreciated that on a level. And also, he does technically want to help him, though obviously mm. he was still comedic and it didn't really work. When he's like, I'll go talk <laughs> yeah. to the clubs. Yeah. And then he gets arrested. 
<laughs> so I, yeah. I did appreciate on a level that when he was those conversations mm-hmm. with J.W. Okay, Pepper. Sure. Uh, anyways, I mean, that's the dialogue is here. I guess the dialogue is not like amazing, but I appreciated the writing of, of that character, I guess, more than I did previously. Obviously, the other thing I was going to say is uh, as much as I was saying with secondary characters, I, I, I did like how Maud. Uh, Adams, like the the scenes with him, uh, with Roger Moore and Maude Adams. Even though I like she kind of failed, and same with Burdeklin. Like, like I think Josh is probably going to touch upon this too. Is like the the dialogue is there, but I feel like it, his uh, the delivery wasn't. Mm. And uh, but I did appreciate sort of like the first the first um, encounter with uh, Maude Adams' character. And, and Roger Moore as Bond in, in Man with the Golden Gun. And obviously the the other ones with Scaramanga, like when he's showing him around and then obviously the dinner table scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's the, a great scene. The, those are the ones that are sort of really sort of reverberated with me for this film, for for the writing and the dialogue for, uh, for Megwitz. Yeah, I agree with you. I've liked the Lazar scene a lot. I like the whole thing. I really like the, I like the bits of knickknack. The more I, I watch this yeah, film, when I do actually, rewatch yeah. it, knickknack stands out to me as a really cool little character, you know? Yeah. I, pardon the absolutely. pun. Yeah, yeah. I should, the point. Mm. Um, what you're saying about uh, what you're saying about J.W. Pepper reminded me that uh, I, I glossed over it, but or I skipped over it. But uh, when when they were scouting for Live and Let Die, um, he was dealing. Cubby and Tom Mankiewicz were dealing with uh, a rather racist police sheriff outside of New Orleans who basically didn't want to give up his parish for filming because of the black actors, and had said things like, "Well, you know, there's a lot of black, a lot of colored people that we don't want upsetting the locals." So, sorry. So Cubby, so Cubby basically said to him, okay, that's fine, we'll go spend our millions in some other parish. And literally, like, turnabout, apparently, this sheriff's like, oh, hang on now, hang on. He started to change his tune, right? Of course. And he eased up, but he asked, he said, okay, look, can you just keep it down to a dull roar with the black folk? <laughs> and Cubby promised that he would because he really wanted these locations. And then he said to the transportation captain on, uh, of the production, he said, I want a black guy behind the wheel of every vehicle. <laughs> Fucking cracker. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said. That's pretty cool. I like that. But yeah, Cubby's awesome. Yeah, Cubby is awesome. Anyway, yeah, so I liked, uh, I liked the Lazar stuff. I liked the knickknack stuff. I, I, I like this film more, but I don't know why I don't like it more. It's, it's a weird one. The, the, the Man with the Golden Gun has got some great character writing for the villains it's got some good secondary character writings and yet the film the film is just one that i find drags like i can't quite get it yeah it's a pacing yeah this is my theory i think the movie slows down as much as i like the martial arts dojo scene yeah that to me is when the movie slows down yeah yeah and then and that chase is so lackluster afterwards yeah uh, yeah, the martial arts scene. Oh man, no, because I know that I'm like, oh, it's 1974 and it's taking mm-hmm. place in Asia. Well, you have to do a martial arts scene, and the and the and the yeah, white guy has yeah. to win. I'm like, come on, man. Like everyone's into Bruce Lee. Like you know, like and then also like I just hated like the the bowing and then just kicking him in the head. I'm like, come on. Yeah. I mean, well, like, I, I, only... I think Roger Moore's Bond would probably have done no, no, that. To would, be honest, he would, but I just didn't <laughs> like that. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. The other thing is, I I did like the dialogue, and again, another. I'm just gonna sort of. I'm just. I I apologize for jumping in here. No, no, um, no. But the lieutenant hip i like yeah, his yeah, he's too cool. there's another example yes. of of the dialogue 
and and character writing for another secondary character. I thought Lieutenant mm. Hip was was well done too. He's the best you know, and worst. He's the best and worst, Jeff, because yeah. he's, he's good good lines for writing, but then he's just he just disappears when Bond fucking needs him. Like he just goes, yeah, he's written off the page. He just drives off. He just drives off. I was like, wait, did I miss something here? Like what? Yeah, what the hell yeah. is he doing? Anyway, but I also Josh, like how he dr- I like how like in order to you know we're ch- we're I, the whole thing about you know the, we're surveilling the powerful mm. industrialist high fat. Yeah. But I'm going to go pick up my, my nieces. Yeah. Uh, That's right, yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah. don't even bring your nieces, <laughs> you know, on, on that whatsoever. Like, drop your nieces off, then go pick up James Bond and, and bring him there. Like, yeah. Well... Yeah. But his nieces were the secret weapons, right? I mean, that's right. They they, they do reveal that, yeah, yes. they, they, and, yeah. and and that does kind of yeah. They're like but, insurance men. Yeah, exactly. I and like Hip does have some good lines. I agree. I really like the dialogue between M and I like how M is like the, the total boss and man of the golden gun. Like uh-huh. even Q, yeah. he's like he's like, oh shut up, Q. You know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah I like he's that. tired of Q as well. You know, and uh, well, and, Josh, let me ask you this, Bond, buddy. If as Mankiewicz says, he got the balance right with the race cards in live and let die does he getting it right here with the man with the golden gun because this is where i think maybe he's a bit out of his depth he doesn't and can't write the american or he can't write the asian in asia the way he's writing the black man in america and he's still writing this from a white person's perspective obviously and he's he's absolutely jumping on trends and whatnot but i i feel like maybe that's one of the reasons why this film doesn't stick quite as well either yeah, I kind of feel that. Even though, you know, like you can say the black exploitation element of Live and Let Die is problematic, but yes, you can tell yeah. that Mankiewicz wasn't writing to, he wasn't writing from that point of view, or he wasn't trying to be racist or anything like that in his writing. Um, but with Man of the Golden Gun, you mentioned when he was on the set of the movie or working on the film, he was in Hong Kong and he went to the mm-hmm. bottoms up. And he look, I think he has a very negative reaction to maybe the the exploitative culture, I guess, in that area. And maybe he just couldn't quite get it. And maybe he just, mm-hmm. it just didn't connect with them. And maybe, maybe that's why yeah. it comes off that's more campy point. and more slightly more racist than, than usual. You know, yeah, just, I hadn't thought of that before. That he doesn't that's a, understand. That's a very good observation. And uh, <laughs> yeah. on a personal level that, that, I mean, yeah, if you're putting it that way on a personal level, I mean, that would obviously affect someone having to write. If you're, if you're stuck in an environment that you're not necessarily you're not happy with, and yeah. or, or like, you know, first impressions yeah. that makes, that makes very good sense actually. So yeah. good observation, yeah. Josh. He doesn't talk about that in the book. No sort of sense of xenophobia apart from just the, the, the slights of how exploitative it was. Maybe, yeah, fair. Yeah. Maybe, and I'm not trying to say anything against Tom Mankiewicz, you know, no, we, no, all yeah. have, we all have these thoughts within us and we mm. have our own prejudices and maybe, Maybe he was just, maybe he just wasn't, uh, maybe he deep, maybe slightly deep down, he was a little xenophobic about that culture and, yeah, yeah. and, and, and just kind of came out in his writing, maybe not intentional, but subconsciously. And he just wasn't educated or informed enough about it. And so that's mm-hmm. how those prejudices maybe came out and made it kind of off kilter, I guess, as you, as you said, or well, sort Josh, of as I paraphrase you saying. Yeah, no, that, that's good. If, if I can use Josh, what you said earlier about the ED levy to sort of transition us into this last stage of of our conversation for today. And it isn't a big stage. It's it's a very small stage. But um, I thought, until I picked up Mankiewicz's autobiography, that this is where his relationship with James Bond ended. But it isn't. Because Cubby Broccoli, a few years after this film, The Man with the Golden Gun, Cubby Broccoli got in touch with him and he asked Mankiewicz to rewrite Christopher Wood's treatment for The Spy Who Loved Me. This is what he says. He says, now here's the deal. This has got to be done away from the Writers Guild because I need a big rewrite. Under the ED plan, we've already had our three non-British subjects on this picture. The ED plan stipulated that to receive government credit and financial help on the film, 
Produced in the United Kingdom, only three non-Brits could be involved in any capacity. There's me, somebody else, and Barbara Bach here. So you can't get credit because we'll lose our ED plan eligibility. And if it goes through the Writers Guild, Cubby said, you're probably going to get a credit because I'm asking for a big rewrite. But you can't have a credit, so I'm going to get in trouble with the Guild. Nobody can know that you're on this picture. I gotta pay you cash. We made the deal. Nobody knew that I was rewriting The Spy Who Loved Me. The first 30 pages huh. went off to England. Roger Moore called Cubby and asked, when did Mankiewicz get on this picture? Cub <laughs> Cubby said, me, yeah, yeah. Well, Cubby said, he's not on the picture, Roger. Roger said, of course he is. He's on every fucking page. Tell him he's doing a good job. <laughs> wow, that's cool. So, yeah, I mean, he doesn't go on about it. The F word. It's kind of funny to I know, right? The F word, yeah. He doesn't go on about it. He just says that he was at Cubby's house every day rewriting The Spy Who Loved Me. He talks about how huh. um, he talks about how Catherine Deneuve, who was on our list of alternate Bond girls, uh, really wanted she really wanted to do that picture, but oh she God. Would, she so was asking better. so much better. Well, she was asking four hundred thousand and dropped her price to two hundred fifty thousand because she was really keen. Cubby told her he was flattered, but he said. I've never paid more than 80000 for a James Bond girl in my life. None of these girls, with the possible exception of Ursula Andress, ever went on to become a star or have a career. I'd rather take the 170000 extra and put it up on the screen someplace. I'm flattered that she wants to do it, but I cannot pay a Bond girl two hundred and fifty grand. You know, I'm wondering if Saltzman was around, if he would have been more appreciative yeah, of Deneuve. Yeah, interesting, Cause, huh? Because mm. Deneuve was like, she was, uh, I mean, uh, you have, what was it, uh... That Ben Well, that Ben Well film, uh, that she, Ben Well she film, that she yeah, 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 she like she, yeah, yeah. she was a well, she was a well-known French actress, and she was yeah. a critically acclaimed yeah, French actress as well. Mm. And I'm just uh, amazed that uh, mm. Cubby was a Philistine in that aspect, right? I know, but, hey, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, there's another thing that he says here during this little section of his uh, autobiography, guys. He's talking about censorship, and we've talked about this on the show before too. The sort of difference between American censorship, which was kind of um, fearing sex but okay with violence, and the British okay with sex but not so much violence. And he talks about the problems with diamonds are forever and whatnot. But then he gets onto this line that he wrote for the spy who loved me. It's a very short bit. I'll just read this. My favorite lines in Bond that I ever wrote were cut out of The Spy Who Loved Me, and they were Roger Moore's favorite lines as well. At a bar, he runs into Barbara Bach, who plays a Russian colonel. The two of them know who the other is, but they've never officially met. Bond says, for the lady, a Stolichnaya. She says, and for the gentleman, a vodka martini shaken, not stirred. He turns to her and says, I must say, you're much more beautiful than the pictures we have of you, Colonel. And she says, I'm afraid the only picture we have of you, Mr. Bond, was taken in bed with one of our agents, a Miss Titania Romanova, who huh. was the girl in From Russia with Love. Yes. Bond, Bond then says, uh, and, was yeah. she, and was she smiling? And the Colonel says, as I recall, her mouth was not immediately visible in the photograph. Bond says, ah, then I was smiling. <laughs> oh, wow. They wouldn't let us do it. They wouldn't let us do it. They said, you got to cut that out. Censorship was so silly. I would say, God, if anybody understands that, then we're not protecting them from anything. A 12-year-old won't know what the hell we're talking about. Sometimes what you did, and everybody did it on purpose, you'd write 20 things you knew would never pass to try to negotiate and get the four in oh, that you really okay. wanted. <laughs> it, was like, it was like that. And after, Cubby would yell and scream, and they would say, okay, these four, but not the other eight. If you were lucky, they were the eight that you never wanted anyway. So, yeah, pretty interesting. Uh, I, yeah, I think I think that's cool. So, yeah, I mean, Mankiewicz had a big hand in The Spy Who Loved Me. And I wow. guess by... Yeah. That kind of makes you want to go watch The Spy Who Loved Me again now. Just I know, see, right? Like, the, yeah, the Mankiewiczisms cool. in there, for sure. 
Well, I mean, look I'll at us, three Bond fans, three Bond fans. We didn't know that until we picked, until I picked up this book. I was really surprised. I'm sure there are many listening, or several listening who will know that. But hey, if, if like us, you didn't know that Mankiewicz had a really heavy hand and the spy who loved me because it's Chris Wood's credit, right? Yes. It's uh, interesting stuff. And yeah, I think there's a uh, scope to go back and, uh, and see that. Yeah. For, for, for sure. Mm. Now, going back to um, The Man with the Golden Gun, Jeff was mentioning about how Mankiewicz does dialogue and writing for some side characters. I got to tell you, my favorite side character in Man with the Golden Gun is when Bond goes to see uh, Miss Anders at the at the at the hotel, and there's like this waiter coming out. And oh, goes, him! Yeah, 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 yeah. Or whatever. And he goes, it's a, it's a surprise, and he goes, "Ooh, it's a surprise!" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that character. He's just a realistic. <laughs> he's, just a, he's like a realistic guy you would run into. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, he could speak pretty good English for the tourist and everything like that, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he gets kind of like their attitude and and stuff, and he's just having fun doing his job. Like, I don't know, like. <laughs> I just yeah, seem like, funny. yeah, I, I just seem like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I just, I just love that guy's character. Cool. Uh, seriously, though, going forward, though, um, the dialogue between Moore, Bond, and uh, Christopher Lee Scaramanga, uh-huh. ugh, that's great stuff. All their dialogue, particularly the yeah. dinner table scene, Bond's yep. moral righteousness coming through a little bit more so. Uh, you know, Bond is mentions that, you know, I serve my country, mm-hmm. and the people usually I kill are the ones that deserve killing. And Scaramanga, you know, like you work for peanuts, you know, mm-hmm. just the two different mentalities that was going on there. That was great writing and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Was that May? Because was that Maybomb though, or was that? It's it's tough story? it's tough to say. Mankiewicz yeah. Mankiewicz yeah, doesn't absolutely. talk in any specific terms about what he wrote and what Maybomb polished. But I mean, the script was because written. The, scene, the script was written scene. when he left. He just yeah. He but you can't you can't not have a writer on. Uh, in the near in, in the vicinity right and you got you got to have yeah. someone and so when one of your writers when the guy who wrote the script says i'm done then you got to have somebody that you can trust to help the director polish up what he wants and so guy hamilton and dick maybaum had done a lot of work together the yes. producers brought dick on on side and, th- and that was that i mean so i mean it, it's for all intents and purposes it's tom mankiewicz's work but yes. dick maybaum came on as the kind of security right in case uh, security polish i guess yeah, that's a good point. But I want to point out too is that that scene is also reminiscent of the dinner scene between Bond and Doctor Doctor No. no yeah, well. totally. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that could have been a Maybomb is on top of yeah, that, right? Maybe like, just, just, just uh, Maybomb bringing back one of his mm. old scenes. So or how much of that was Joanna was Harwood famous. though? Maybe that was Joanna Harwood. Oh, it could be. Oh yeah, Joanna Harwood. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Because she was there. Her. She was there with him. Anyway. Yeah. Guys, look. One other, uh, go ahead, Jeff. Go, and I'm, I'm sorry to. Uh, no man. Uh, the other thing. Now, this isn't obviously a side character, but I really enjoyed the first, uh, like the first scene with Bond in and M, mm. uh, with. Uh, the psychologist and and the, uh, yeah. the other guy. Yeah. Yeah, and because it was you know he was trying to say like okay Bond to see, tell us what you think, and then Bond being you know his. Uh, basically he was kind of being a know-it-all and then mm-hmm. uh and really kind of like ripped him a new one being like well who would want to kill me he's like oh yeah tailors <laughs> like he burned him about yeah. like tailors <laughs> wives and I was like, jealous oh, husbands yeah humiliated tailors like i was like oh man. angry chefs yeah yeah he is ripping into him <laughs> yeah I, I liked but i liked that and uh, but it was funny because then he was just uh but i thought that was a that was a well-written kind of scene right off the bat there Edward Fox should have watched that scene and then based his oh, M on gosh, that for yeah. yeah. forget. Hundred percent. Sorry, James, James, is it James Fox or is it Edward Fox? I think it's James Fox, isn't it? Edward Fox. I think Edward, it's Edward. Yeah, yeah. 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 But I agree with you. Well guys. <laughs> 
with with all said and done, I mean, here we are at the end of the Mankiewicz episode. Um, obviously, we're skipping over certain things about the guy's personal life, and we, we did skip over the great deep analysis of the films, but I, I would maybe just posit, you know, that we have already gone through these films in, in great detail on the episodes dedicated to them. Um, That's right. How do you feel about Mankiewicz as a writer, as his, contribu- uh, as his contribution to the Bond um, the Bond stories. I mean, where where do you place them? Not necessarily in terms of ranking, but in importance. If I can begin, uh, yeah, if, I, yeah. if I can begin, um, I would say this so-called, I guess you could call it the Mankiewicz trilogy, right? Diamonds mm-hmm. Are Forever, uh, Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun. I really liked how he writes dialogue. Um, as again, I think the main issue is is how the dialogue is delivered. Mm-hmm. When you'd have less capable yeah. people delivering the dialogue. Uh, no offense to some of the Bond girls at the time, but again, the the uh, what you know Anthony Burgess says, like in the forewords to the Bond novels, they were little more than animated centerfolds, uh, and right. they hired yeah. people for those kind of roles, right? Well, we have and talked so, about Jill St. John, we have talked about Britt Eklund, yes. and we don't necessarily disagree with with what you're saying here, but uh, that's I, what I'm trying to say is is yeah. that uh, I really appreciate his dialogue. I like how he writes characters and scenes. I like how he writes comedy. I also think he works well with Guy Hamilton in the personally in Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. Uh, and, and and even afterwards, the eventedness of certain scenes, like as weird as it is, the moon buggy scene, when you watch Diamonds Are Forever, it works so well. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and then it leads into that great car chase, you know, in, in Las Vegas and stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I got a little bit of a hot take. I want to say too, uh, I think Diamonds Are Forever is a better, it's a better Bond film than You Only Live Twice. That, that is a hot take, my friend. Yeah, um, that's pretty, that's, that's, that's a, pretty a hot, hot take. take. I still feel that Connery, I feel that Connery was more engaged in Diamonds Are Forever, despite, you know, how different he looks aesthetically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I agree. I feel like he was yeah. still engaged into the role, you know, more so than he was in Diamonds Are, uh, than You Only Look okay. Twice. I don't, and I think Mankiewicz's yeah. script may have brought that out into him. Maybe Connery's like, oh, this is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that I'm sleeping with Jill St. John on the side and, and whatever, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, yeah, he, he he might have just been having a good time, you know, and maybe that kind of came out in the film. And well, he was. It wasn't he golfing with uh, with uh, Kentucky Kentucky Sausage Boy there. What's his name? Uh, Jimmy Dean. Yeah, <laughs> Jimmy Dean. Remember? Yeah, white, right? yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, it's a good take, uh, Josh. Yeah. I think what you're talking. I think what you're talking about is its rewatch value. Um, I yeah. find that I find Connery is more engaged in Diamonds Are Forever. Is it a better film? I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm gonna have to go back and see them now. Now I'm looking I, I looking at them this way. Yeah. Watching it. I love how Las Vegas looks in the movie. Um, I just love all of some of the inventive scenes. Some of the comedy is really fun. Mm-hmm. Jill St. John is nice to look at for sure. Um, but I I also like just all like the gangster characters and just like the dialogue. Um, cool, yeah. And the idea of Brofeld and, and Drag is just so kind of like uh, and iconoclast that I just kind of like you know uh, when <laughs> yeah. it comes to the to the Bond oeuvre, it's just kind of like you've got to I see like it. <laughs> I enjoy how it pisses people off, I guess you could say. So it's kind of like my Rebel film that I just enjoy of the Bond of the Bond series. All right, there you go. Cool. My guilty pleasure, I guess, of the Bond series, you could say. Well, I mean, I, I kind of feel like Mankiewicz probably himself feels that Live and Let Die is the it, it's it's the it's the best of the three that he does. It's my favorite of the three yeah, that yes. he does. Yeah. But it's also because he writes so well for that humor that Moore walks into, and exactly. he writes he writes exactly. the lines that Roger Moore delivers and can play with in a way that Connery only did a little bit with. Roger Moore takes them to silly town in some cases, and it really works. And I and I like I like that, and I admire the. Even if it is a silly white man's perspective, I admire the, 
I'm not going to use the word courage because it ain't fucking courage. Not in this, not in this, not at all. But I, I like what he tries to do, what he tried to do by giving the, the, the black characters agency uh, with the exploitation of the, you know, the kind of racial stereotypes. And even if it didn't always work, it I think it works more than it fails. Yes, I agree. Anyway. Um, I think, well, and what I, all I was going to say is that I think what's important, if we look at the overall sort of like, uh, if, you will, if we look at the Bond films as a whole, yeah. I think I think Mankiewicz has a very important role of, of how those three films, uh, you know, sort of like in the middle part of, of the Bond films, I, I mean, it's, it's very important how those three films came out when they did and the importance of, of the Roger Moore coming in, taking over from Connery. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, the, the writing, obviously, and Moore's known for his, and we all know that Moore's known for a little bit more slapstick and, and, and humor. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's important because as we've, if we, as uh, Scott has uh, pointed out throughout this uh, podcast, is that Mankiewicz uh, is able to write that, and I think it's important if you look at uh, as Bond films going, uh, going forward, Mankiewicz had a very important role on, on how the Bond films sort of grew, and and Roger Moore being such an important Bond at the time, it was probably Mankiewicz and the chemistry they had between the actor and the writing that made the Bond films as successful as they were mm-hmm. to an extent, and which then made obviously the films be more rewatchable. And, and, and uh, mm. I, I think, I think it was important. I think going forward, if you go through the late seventies and eighties, but I think these three films that Mankiewicz ha- had a role in with the writing really were very important on how the Bond franchise worked through the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think that's well said, sir. I think that uh, the foundation he sets for the and, with, there you go. and with Roger Moore allows yeah. for Moore's tenure exactly. to be more comfortably, um, kind of comfortably paved, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's what I yeah. think. Is I think it, it it maybe made the audience feel like okay, you know what? We, I you know, know what I'm getting. Yeah, I know what I'm getting because it's like yes, okay, so we have a new Bond. It's the early '70s. You know, it's a different time, but then people like you you have sort of a consistency for those you know uh, those Bond like it, there was consistency, and I think it 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 shows, and I think it it did it definitely did the Bond franchise justice uh, with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well said. Good, 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 that's a good point, Jeff. And just think about it too. It makes even I think Moonraker stand out even more as like the uh, the black sheep of everything at this time because mm-hmm. now that I know that Mankiewicz was involved <laughs> yeah. with Spy Who Loved Me, it makes <laughs> yes. a lot of sense why I enjoy that much much more than I did yeah. Moonraker. Yeah. And the fact that Moonraker had no Mankiewicz, it had no one else, just had Christopher Wood, assume presumably. Uh, you can kind of see how Moonraker doesn't work as well as those other three. Roger Moore films do. You yeah. know what I mean? It's Silly Town. Uh, or other four, I should say. Yeah, even like Mankiewicz, like even though like, th- yeah, there was campy elements in his scripts, but there was kind of a genius to them in their own way yeah. and how they presented scenes and, and stuff like that. And maybe some elements didn't work together with the script as mm-hmm. a whole. They still kind of in their own way, they're watchable. But then Why Who Loved Me makes a lot more sense why it's more watchable yep. than Moonraker exactly. because of Mankiewicz's influences. And that totally makes sense to me now why... Hmm. Spy, Spy Who Loved Me is kind of like the bastard child of Mankiewicz, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's true. And, and if you think of it this way, because with Lazarus being doing the one, and then Bond coming back doing Diamonds Are Forever, and then you yeah. have another Bond, it's very important, right? I think we were talking about when you have Brosnan come in in, in 95, 
it's different because it's a whole new, you know, it's a new decade and it's mm-hmm. a new bond. So it's very, it's a, you know, it's like, ooh, what's, what's this? There's a lot of sort of what ifs and it's, it could be awkward. Is yeah. that when you have uh, the writing that works so well with a new bond and chemistry, I think that that really sort of laid the groundwork for, for the audience and people to sort of kind of almost like breathe a sigh of relief and be like, okay, you know what? There's a new bond, but I'm happy with this and it works. Yeah. Yes. All right, guys. Well, look, um, that was awesome. I think that was that was good fun talking our way through through Mankiewicz there. I'm really glad that I went through the book. I would recommend it to any listeners who want to know more about Mankiewicz or kind of his family, uh, his his role in Hollywood, his relationships. Uh, but and certainly there's good sections there on, on the Bond stuff as well. And I think if you combine it and complement it with Roger Moore's and Cubby Broccoli's, you know, testimonials of the time. And if you've got Roger Moore's diary of the uh, Live and Let Die, you know, where you learn about the 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 wanky mitts um uh, nicknames and all that stuff like it it does paint a good picture of a man who to me at least just really seemed to enjoy and be grateful for being there and left when he wanted to leave before he dried out um uh, but left left a a real a real i won't say legacy but certainly for roger moore's era i think it was a legacy because as jeff Jeff just pointed out you know he he laid the foundations of of that character's performance lines and sort of his uh, his dimensions so I think it's uh, yeah Mankiewicz is definitely a, a writer I'm gonna go check out now I, I, I want to go away and watch Delirious with John Candy I want yeah, I want to watch so Superman I want to watch Superman yeah. again and yeah, of course sure. um, we, we didn't talk about it here today but Mankiewicz also did a screenplay for Batman in 1983 or 84 called The yes. Batman which is um, Quite interesting. Which, which is actually the title of the new Batman film coming out called True enough. Batman. Yes, well, <laughs> not to be confused with that, but uh, Mankiewicz's script, which he created, was the first script for what would become Tim Burton's Batman. But uh, although that the process took six years, what Mankiewicz's script is credited as doing is keeping the project alive when other studios were passing on it because it had his name attached to it. Um, uh... People kept looking at it and saying, no, not for us. No, not for us. Well, maybe if we did this. So the idea of there being a script written for Batman that became Burton's Batman comes back to Mankiewicz as well even though the nature of the content is quite different by the time the six years has elapsed you know and yeah so with that um, gents why don't we uh, why don't we say goodbye to Mankiewicz and the bulk of this episode and uh, talk a little bit just for a moment on what we're going to do with our next episode because we've got a creative project don't we I think if we ever did make our own Bond film, it should be called Bringing It Back. <laughs> well, Josh, you're going to get your chance. You're going to get your chance to title your own Bond film because uh, one of the things that we want to do is get a little bit creative and test our, our hands as Canadian citizens. Now, James Bond has never visited Canada. With the novels, of course, he he's been there, and um, in a short story for your eyes only, but he has not been there yet in the films. And what we decided to do is three Canadians. He was almost he was almost sent there in Thunderball though, but yes, he, he went true. to NASA. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> dodge, dodge, dodge <laughs> up bullet. He did. Yeah, you can spend your winter in 
the Caribbean, or you can go to Canada. No thanks. <laughs> uh, right. Well, all right. Let's get let's get back on track here. So what what we're looking to do here for our next episode, we are going to um, create pitches for three different James Bond stories, and we're going to do these set in Canada. Now, we're three Canadians, one abroad, living abroad, and, and two domestic, but all of us have got interesting and very different, I'm guessing, um, appreciations of our, of our home nation and what it can offer. And because James Bond has never been there, he's never filmed in Canada, there's no set pieces in any Canadian site, we're going to pitch three different Canadian James Bond stories. And the way we're going to do it uh, we're going to follow rules, and these rules will be discussed behind the scenes, and we'll share with you guys uh, online what exactly we're going to do. But each of us is going to have an opportunity to choose a James Bond era and actor. So we're going to roll the roulette, and I've separated the numbers uh, 1 to 12. So Jeff, Josh, and myself will each get 12 numbers, and whoever's first is so going to get the choice of what Bond you want to use. And so you then have to go away and create a story um for that james bond you choose in canada and uh for the sake of talking about it as a preview that's as far as we're going to go but mm -hmm. if you if you guys are game i'm ready to start selecting the bonds yeah sure. absolutely so you you'll have you'll have had a little think about who you'd like to use as your bond for the story and uh we'll just go with spin number one let's see who's going to get first pick we've got connery moore dalton Brosnan, Craig, and Lazenby. It's Bond 12. Bond 12. Now, the way I had this organized, I had Jeff 1 to 12, I had Josh 13 to 24, and I had myself 25 to 36. So, Jeff, you get the first pick, buddy, and whatever Bond you take, the rest of us cannot use. Uh, Brosnan. Brosnan, okay, you're taking... I, I knew you were going to pick that. Brosnan's Bond. <laughs> Very cool. You are taking Brosnan's Bond, and you're going to create a story for him in Canada in some capacity. And we're going to pitch these on our next episode, which is going to be really cool. And we'll say a bit more about that in a moment. So Josh, it's between me and you. Just to clarify, as it relates to siding, we're not writing the screenplays for these films. No. We're just writing the yeah, synopses. Yeah, we don't have Tom Mankiewicz to fix them for us. That's correct. <laughs> well, uh, Josh, it is Red 21, my friend. That's you. So you get okay. the next choice. Connery. Connery. You're choosing Connery's Bond, okay? Well, I guess that leaves me with a choice. I don't even need to spin. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I don't need yeah. to spin. I'm going to choose Roger Moore. Yeah. No way, really? What? Yeah, I'm going to oh, choose God, Roger like Moore. Yeah. so out of left field. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Well, that wasn't, he wasn't my first choice. My first choice was, was Brosnan. So I, knew, uh, like, I knew either you or Jeff were going to choose yeah, Brosnan. My first uh, choice was Brosnan, but I remember I'm, I'm happy. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy with Roger Moore. So I've got Roger Moore. Jeff's got Brosnan and Josh, you've got Sean Connery. And what we're going to do, we're going to go away. We're going to think of a story that we could set up with a pre-title sequence and then a plot, not necessarily connected to that sequence, but we're going to we're going to do it. And I'm thinking, guys, maybe we need to have at least three different Canadian locations. Sure. Yeah. Three different Canadian locations, um, a synopsis that have, makes sense. Can we have one non-Canadian location? Just sure, of course. Yeah. 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 So you got London. That's requisite. London's fine. Well, I was going to say, yeah, you but need maybe to have one other. Yeah. 
one other locale just to make things colorful. It's up to and you. Then... It's up to you. As long as your story involves three Canadian sites, uh, three Canadian stops, then you can do whatever you want. And I don't think we need to worry about, well, who are we going to cast and all of that. If you, you, know, you want to play that game, you can. Uh, but the characters are what's important. Come up with the characters. Come up with the synopsis. Don't worry about casting. Don't worry about like the production of the film. Let's just get our synopsis up. And if they're any good, we'll pitch them to the Broccoli's. Sounds, Sounds good. good. And yeah, have fun with that. I think maybe guys will give ourselves an extra week for this one. Hey, so we'll come back oh, in two or three weeks yeah. and, so. and have some fun with it. But next episode will be dedicated to pitching for you guys, our listeners. Um, yeah. The three Canadian bond stories. And I hope this will be fun. Oh, I, think so. I think so too. Well, look guys, thanks very much. This was a good laugh. Um, always good fun getting together and talking bond. And I think, I think we did something a little different today. So I'm quite proud of that. We did. We did. It was good. All right. It's a goodbye from me, then, over here in Scotland. Goodbye from uh, me over here in Ottawa. Goodbye from me in the other part of Ottawa. The other, <laughs> the end. other part of Ottawa, yeah. Exactly. The other end. Which goodbye one of... from the two of us from Ottawa. Right. Okay, take it easy, guys, and stay safe out there, everybody. Mm-hmm.